It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 330. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from the Embassy Suite Studios in Des Moines, Iowa. Today's show was recorded on the 26th of June, 2018. Episode: Laser strikes, computer glitches, passengers suing, and a 747 grass strip landing. More news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale: murder on the flight deck. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat packs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 330 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we talk about aviation news and answer your super, super feedback. And joining me today... ...is someone in his southern mansion in Smyrna, Georgia. He's a barbecue master, a bourbon connoisseur, motorcycle riding, pontoon boat skipper, and a captain... For a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Well, hello, everybody. Great to be back once again. And I was thinking about this this past week. A pontoon skipper and an airline captain. I actually have more time being a skipper on the pontoon than I do as a airline captain at this point. So pretty, uh, pretty scary. But uh, we're working on that. that and uh, great to be back for another show. Missing uh, Captain uh, Nick on... 3.30, no less. How ironic. Yeah, I know. 3.30. I hope he doesn't miss 3.40. Yeah, well, yeah. Because that would be embarrassing. That would be. And uh, certainly be be uh, nice to have Dr. Steph join us a little bit later, hopefully on, later on. But uh, we're here and uh, here to entertain, of course. Yes. Now, Dr. Steph was planning on being with us, but uh, she was at work today. And she drove her really cool Jeep. And uh, the Jeep does not have a top on it at the moment. And the weather in the Charlotte area right now is uh, pretty stormy and she just couldn't drive home from work. And so she's waiting for the weather to clear. And uh, when it does, she's going to head on home and hopefully join us at some point during today's show. So is it fair to say that Dr. Steph's Jeep is topless? Yes. Not Dr. Steph, but the Jeep. The Jeep is topless and afraid of getting wet. Yes. The Jeep. The Jeep. Yes. I think you got that correct. Perfect. Thank you very Excellent. much. Excellent. Yes. So, Dana, how have you been? I'm, I'm sure that uh, being a new captain and uh, being relatively low on the captain seniority list, you must be just flying your the heck out of that airplane. I mean, you must uh, just, I mean, hardly ever home, flying a lot, right? Yeah. Hello? <laughs> no? Yeah. Um, I have 30.07 hours as PIC, which all of include all of my IOE or initial operating experience. And I haven't flown since June 4th. 
they have now put me on a short call effective tomorrow night at uh, 2200 local. Uh, and that's my first opportunity to actually fly an airplane because they haven't used me at all. Now, that's not from a lack of me trying to go ahead and uh, put in a couple of uh, what we call yellow slips, which is a preference to fly a specific rotation and or specific uh, trip. However, I was schooled this afternoon. I thought I was doing it, doing it properly. However, uh, I found out that I was doing it absolutely the uh, wrong way. It's been a long time since I've been on reserve, and uh, the reserve way of doing things is completely different than if you're a senior captain or a senior first officer like I was, a senior captain like Jeff is. Um, so my uh, quality of life is this month been, uh, well, pretty good. I have no complaints. But, however, I haven't seen the inside of an airplane or flown an airplane at all since completing my OE. So uh, I'm, I'm ready to get out there. I'd like to get out there and do some flying. Um, I've had absolutely no issue um, relaxing a little bit. It's been nice after completing my uh, training, which I know uh, Captain Jeff has put out my crew logs. And uh, so the uh, the background and everything i went through so it's been kind of a, a relief um although they haven't been using me i thought for sure today i would not be available um because there were a lot of trips in the open time window uh, however they still didn't utilize me so okay i'm here yeah you know it's it's not it would be uh i, I would be more concerned about it if it were an airplane that you didn't have a lot of experience in a lot of hours in but you've been flying what the the mad dog as a first officer for 10 years yeah i've got close to a little over seven thousand hours in it and actually my buddy and i who my buddy dave is who i spent the afternoon with uh, he's a, a captain with spirit um mm -hmm. and uh, oh yeah i met dave didn't yeah, i at the you sure um, did the the loyal q and brew yep you sure did he's a Alpharetta. great guy and uh yeah he has commented i can't tell you how many times how many times he's commented on this one fact that i do not need to be consolidated so what consolidation means is after you check out on a specific type of airplane you have to build and i'm forgetting whether it's three months or four months i think it's four months i think it's 120 uh um 100 uh, 60 days, no, 140 days, something like that, right around there, that you have got to fly 100 hours on the new airplane type um, within that time frame. But because I've been, as as uh, Captain Jeff just alluded to, because I've been on the aircraft as long as I have and as much experience as I have in my seat, um, just transferring 36 inches over to the left-hand seat, uh, they do not need me to consolidate. So the only restriction that I have is that I am a low minimums, uh, excuse me, high minimums captain. So until I build 100 hours worth of experience on the airplane, I can't, I cannot fly a, a Cat 3 approach. Um, I can fly a Cat 2 approach, which I know you, all of you that have been listening to the show, uh, cat, the difference between a Cat 2 and Cat 3, Category 3 is uh, down to 600 RVR, and auto land on the airplane. In a Cat 2, it can be 1,000 RVR or 1,200 RVR, um, as long as the touchdown is reporting that and the rollout can be a lot lower. Um, you can go ahead and, uh, as a low time captain, as long as the airplane's landing, 
Oh, high men's captain. Let me rephrase that. High men's captain. As long as the airplane's landing, autom- automatically landing, then you can continue uh, as a high men's captain. So some yeah. some restrictions I'm, uh, I've got applied to me. However, uh, doesn't look like they're going to go away anytime soon because, well, I still have 30 hours and seven minutes on the airplane as a captain. Well, hopefully you'll get called out, although I hope it's not doing the kind of flying that you don't want to do. But uh, anyway, uh, only if you call good in luck sick, with that. Then I'll be doing the Dana. fly I want to do. Yeah, but, you know, if I call in sick, then somebody a little bit more junior to me, not not super junior, will be picking up my trip. So although I don't this is the last trip in for the month for me and I'm not scheduled for anything in July, so the next time I'll be flying, most li- well, I'll probably pick up something uh, beginning of July, the first week, but I don't have to. So potentially, I wouldn't have to start flying until August. So we'll see. So I guess I'm going to join the bandwagon of airline pilot guy, captain hosts that don't do anything but sit around and drink beer. Okay. Um, Speak for yourself. Let's see. I don't drink beer. Yeah. We do. Uh, we did have a, an issue with a, a possible error. I know it's hard for you to believe uh, in uh, in the plane tale regarding the uh, a little VC. What was it called? VC tenderness. VC10. But uh, but we're we're not sure. We're still kind of trying to sort all that out. Uh, one of our listeners, uh, Ralph, uh, uh, th- thinks he caught us uh, in an error. And of course, Nick will say it wasn't his error. It was uh, some source's error, which I think he's right. But uh, we'll see. Uh, but I'm not going to address that on today's show. We'll just kind of go right over that and we'll wait until Nick is with back with us. And by the way, Nick is not with us because he because of the fact that he's been so busy the last couple of months flying, not that he decided he had to take some time off to go to the uh, the beaches of Cornwall, I think. Yes. He's got a little uh, place there on the coast, the southern coast, oui. and it looks beautiful. We've seen some beautiful pictures from there and he and his uh, beautiful wife, Jilly, are enjoying, uh, along with their three dogs, uh, enjoying the holiday on the uh, on the coast. So we miss you. A- absolutely Nick, we'll, beautiful. Yeah. And we'll and we'll have something you'll hear from Nick on today's show because he did actually do a plain tale for us. So that'll be later in the show. So um, I venture to guess he never even got into his bathing suit, though. I don't. Because know. that water is that cold, you can't even stick your toe into it. Ooh, yes. shrinkage. <laughs> no, I, I did um, not say that. You did. No, I did. So, um, oh, let me tell you a little bit about what I've done since the last show. Not a heck of a lot, because we just recorded, what, last, was it Thursday that we did a show? And uh, now it's Tuesday. And so not too many days have passed. But uh, I did uh, start a trip um, yesterday a three-day trip, and ended up flying one leg to Newark, Liberty International, and it was a nice long layover, and so because of that, they put us up in the Roosevelt Hotel in Manhattan, and after, oh, I, I, I found, well, it wasn't exactly the the food cart that I enjoy going to for the chicken and rice, the halal um, uh, kind of food, a Mediterranean kind of food, but I found a place that is pretty good, um, awfully close to the uh, food truck truck that I was list, uh, looking for, and so I had a nice uh, chicken and rice meal, and then I took a nap, and then uh, after that, uh, met up with Tanya and Philip at 
the Shakespeare Pub uh, in the William Hotel, just about five or six blocks south of uh, the Roosevelt. And uh, we had a couple of drinks there, and then it started getting really, really noisy. And we decided to move from there to somewhere else to maybe grab a bite to eat. We ended up going to a place called Mad Dog and the Beans. She said, we got to go to this place because it's called Mad Dog. So that's what we did is a little Mexican restaurant uh, a couple of blocks away. And they had some live music in the front. And we said, would you please seat us at the very, very back, please, so that we can find a somewhat quiet place so we can have a conversation. And so that's what we did. And at first it was great. And then, of course, the restaurant started to fill up and then it it got to the point where we were all yelling at each other again, not in a ma- in a mean way, but just just so we could hear each other. So we had a nice uh, Mexican meal there at Mad Dog and the Beans in Manhattan. And then they went off, uh, walked um, back toward, I think they live up somewhere on the Upper West Side. And uh, I walked back to uh, the Roosevelt and had to get to sleep because I had a very early showtime this morning, 4.20 pickup from the Roosevelt because we had to go all the way back over to Newark, fly out of Newark, flew to Atlanta, then flew here to Des Moines. And uh, we got in a little bit before noon here, uh, local time. So now you're caught up. That's what I've been doing. And uh, the race, got a chance to watch the race this weekend, the uh, Formula One uh, race in um, France, the French Grand Prix, and uh, enjoyed that. And uh, that's pretty much it. Sounds, sounds fun. You didn't catch any of the World Cup? I've been watching uh, little bits here and there, but I have to admit, um, it's kind of weird. I, I don't have a, as much interest in it as I did in previous uh, World Cups because our team is not there. The U.S. team didn't didn't make Indeed, it. Indeed, they are not. Yeah, but I've been catching little uh, little bits here and there, but uh, not haven't watched a heck of a lot of it. No, it's it's uh, it's been quite entertaining. I mean, the best part is watching the highlights. So, but uh, yeah. The matches can be quite long, as you know. Yes. Anyways, enough. Okay. Yeah. So I'm thinking now let's uh, move on to the coffee fund. So we'll ask Jeff Smith to uh, lend his musical talent uh, to sing the Java Jive while we talk about the coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No, thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh yeah. The Coffee Fund is your way to support the show financially if you have the resources to do so. And since the last show, we have a couple ways to uh, join the Coffee Fund cadre. Uh, the first is the Coffee Fund Classic Method. And since our last show, Steve Trumbull and Jason Kuntz sent in their recurring donations. Jason just joined us. Welcome, Jason, to the Coffee Fund Cadre. And the other way to do it is to become a patron via patreon.com. And since the last show, we have a new producer, Brandon Gonzalez. He is the host of Podcasting on a Plane podcast. And uh, you should check that out. Again, that's Podcasting on a Plane. Thank you, Brandon, for becoming a producer of the show. And we have two new executive producers, 
Dan Blake, and Tony Fletcher. And if you want to join the Coffee Fund cadre and be feel like you have a, a personal stake in the show, please head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee, where you'll learn how to join up. And we do appreciate your contributions. Now, I need to do one special thing, and it also has something to do with the coffee fund. And at the Innovations in Flight in Washington, D.C., or in the Washington, D.C. area, actually Chantilly, Virginia, uh, on the flight line, we were standing in front, Micah Carrolls and I were standing in front of his Beechcraft Musketeer, and uh, this gentleman walks up with this huge camera, like one of those professional cameras. And, uh, he says, uh, Captain Jeff. And I said, yes. And he said, I just want to let you know that, uh, I'm a big fan of the show and I want to make a contribution to your coffee fund. And he handed me this envelope and in this envelope was a, I'm going to show you on the video just really quickly. So you can't uh, see all the details to check, check for a hundred dollars. Wow. So thank, thank you. you. Uh, Dan Blake, and he also gave me this letter. See the letter? And I'm going to read it. Hi, ABG crew. I'm new to the community and would like to remind you how important this show is. I'm not sure that show or podcast is the, is the proper nomenclature to hang on what you do. In the short term, or the short In the short time. If you could speak. Yeah. In the short time I've been listening, I think the show is a resource. You all have infected me with APG syndrome, sorry about that, and brought me back to aviation after 25 years. I'm going to get current and start teaching, like CFI kind of thing. Maybe I can help with this pilot shortage. I'm way too old for Acme Air, and I like where I live, so I figure I can help some other people get started. Several shows ago, Captain Nick was talking about weight and balance and why he could not fly his big Airbus being one kilogram over gross. 150 years ago, I think he's exaggerating a little bit, he's not quite that old, when I was training to be a Part 137 agricultural pilot, I was training in a Cessna 180 with a belly-mounted spray unit. One day after filling the spray unit with 110 gallons, my instructor decides to test me with a downwind takeoff. It's after lunch, it's hot, the runway is 2,000 feet, it's grass, the fuel tanks are full, the wind is 10 to 12 knots on the tail, the two bodies on board are wide bodies. No sweat. Long story short, we survived. After, finally, getting the 180 to climb out of ground effect, my loving, he puts in quotes, loving instructor ran his hand down my sweat-soaked back and said, Yeah, buddy, no sweat. I got to listen to him laugh while I was sweating this takeoff. The next week, the 180 was in the shop for its annual I got a call from my instructor and he told me that the compression or what the compression on the engine was. The front four cylinders were over 70 pounds. The back two were, well, one was five pounds and the other was zero. He starts laughing again. Now we know why you were sweating on that downwind takeoff. You might want to check weight and balance on that airplane. More laughing as he hangs up the phone. Gotta love instructors like that, don't you? Absolutely love them. <laughs> Here's how the weight worked out. Aircraft empty weight, 1,591 pounds. Engine oil, 22 pounds. Fuel, 360 pounds. Crew, times two, 450 pounds. Spray unit and booms, 
110 pounds. Chemical and spray unit, 891 pounds. And the total gross weight, all that adds up to 3,424 pounds. The allowed gross weight, 2,500 pounds. Wow. So the amount over gross was 924 pounds. And he says, yippee Kaye. <laughs> <laughs> and he got off the ground with it. Wow. Yeah. Downwind. You know, normally we, t- we, we take off with the wind in our face, hopefully. And uh, they were taking off with a, with a tailwind, which you're really not supposed to do. Hope he had a long anyway, runway. Only 2,000 feet of grass. Mm-hmm. Okay. There is a cautionary warning to this story. Don't try this at home. You just might bust your... This airplane had worked many years with the spray in it before I met it. Oh yeah, it flew a lot better after the engine top overhaul. My instructor was a hard hmm who only worked with me after he saw how bad I wanted to fly. He was trained by his father, who was trained by his father, who started flying before they had any newfangled airspeed indicators and such. So I got some of the best training in the world. If you're considering flying as an ag pilot, an agricultural pilot, finding a great instructor is going to be tough. You need a great instructor to fly ag and stay alive. Go to the operators you would like to work for. Get them to recommend an instructor. Then check with their insurance company. Training and insurance are what you need to get into agricultural flying. This is hot, hard, dirty flying, but I loved it. You're going to sweat. Captain Jeff was saying four legs, uh, four leg days were a full day. Try starting before sunup and working until way after sunset every day for a month long bug run. My most landings in a day, 72. That's what I'm talking about. Y'all have fun, fly safe and don't get too crazy with overloading your airplane. Blake out. So thank you, Dan. 72 landings in yeah. one day. That's a lot of work. That is a lot of work. I thought when I was flying parachute jumpers, I did a lot of landings. When I do 12, 13, 14 landings a day, 72. Yeah. Oh. Puts us a shame. Oh, my. Those... So, Dan, it was great meeting you at the Innovations in Flight uh, Family Day at uh, Dulles International. And uh, thank you so much for your personal letter, taking the time to type it all out and everything. And then also thank you for your very generous contribution to the coffee fund and uh, welcome aboard the coffee fund cadre. Hey, please contact me via email if you have an email address so that I can uh, give you some more information about what uh, benefits you have as a member of the coffee fund cadre. All right. That shall do it for the coffee fund for today. And that means it's now time for us to move on to the news. Stand by for news. All right, the first item in our news folder for this week's show is police were able to trace where the laser was coming from and arrested Darren Kenyon, 48, at his home. 
He's a dad of six who's shown a laser pen at a police helicopter flying over Manchester City Center, uh, and that could have caused a catastrophe, a judge said. Darren Kenyon, 48, has been jailed for eight months after admitting using the device, which one of his children had bought on holiday in Spain. The helicopter pilot said he could have been dazzled by the laser and that there was no one else on board who could fly if he had become incapacitated. Captain Nigel Judge, who was flying in support of police searching for a stolen car, was able to safely maintain uh, control of the helicopter, the Manchester Crown Court heard. Judge Anthony Cross said Kenyon's behavior was serious conduct. Little imagination is needed to comprehend how a catastrophe could occur, he said. Particularly in your case, this helicopter was being flown over a busy city center. The brutal reality of all this is that on this particular night, you chose to shine that light at the helicopter for a very considerable period of time. Uh, Anyway, uh, so the story goes on that, uh, as we heard, that uh, he received a prison sentence. And uh, not sure if he actually did it say he served it already or has been given the uh, sentence to uh, be jailed for eight months. I'm not sure. I'll have to read it a little bit more closely, but we'll put the uh, link to the story in the show notes so you can read it yourself. I mean, my question would be how, how did he coordinate and figure out exactly where this pen light was coming from in the helicopter? They're pretty good at it. Uh, we've seen some videos of them uh, you know, kind of with infrared and stuff like that, finding people on the ground that are shining stuff at them. They, they uh, coordinate with the uh, people on the ground uh, and zero in on them. And uh, they don't always catch them, of course, but uh, occasionally they do. Interesting. You just said infrared, that would make a lot of sense because you can, you can pick out a lot of things with the infrared where we as uh, normal aviators would not be able to. So, okay. Makes sense. Yeah. I believe that's the, the deal with it. Okay, uh, second item in our news folder is uh, if you're uh, living ar- uh, around the Charlotte area or if you're trying to fly on a regional affiliate of American Airlines, you'll know about this story. Uh, a computer glitch that grounded 2,500 American Airlines flights. And again, it wasn't actually American Airlines flights. It was their affiliate uh, PSA um, in Charlotte, I believe, uh, left passengers stranded for days at a major U S airport has now been stabilized, but it could still take days to sort out the mess. According to the airline between 200 and 1000 passengers have been sleeping at the Charlotte Douglas international airport in Charlotte, North Carolina, since flights were forced to be canceled starting last Thursday after Americans regional carrier PSA airlines suffered two computer glitches. It was canceled four times, an angry passenger told ABC News. Every time they book us, wait about a half an hour, and it's canceled. A little frustrated, I think. Yeah, I would, I would imagine so. And, uh, you know, the, the fact that they always highlight the major carrier, I understand the culpability, but, you know, the, the reality is, is is that they don't have complete total control over the operations of contract to carry like PSA. No, but they do actually feel the impact of they it sure in a do. big way because all those flights connect to usually mainline, not all of them, but many of them do. And that just probably threw a huge wrench in the system for American. And uh, you'll remember if you've been listening to the show or following any uh, of uh, the news on uh, aviation that in the past couple of years, uh, United has suffered some some big 
glitches, computer glitches in their res systems and ops systems. Uh, Southwest has a few times and has Acme Airlines has uh, also suffered from these issues as well. And Americans seem to have been avoiding it, but uh, looks like it finally caught up with them. And uh, so I think now, by now, uh, everything is all fixed and things are back on the track. Let's hope anyway. Next item. C. DOT's Inspector General will audit FAA's oversight of Southwest Airlines. Okay, the U.S. Transportation Department, DOT, Office of the Inspector General, said on June 20th that it will review FAA's safety oversight of Southwest Airlines, citing recent events, including an in-flight engine failure in April that caused the death of a passenger. In an audit announcement, the IG said it will focus specifically on FAA oversight of Southwest systems for managing risk. In 2015, FAA released a final rule that requires Part 121 commercial carriers to implement organization-wide safety management systems, also known as SMS, by this year. An SMS provides a set of processes for examining data from everyday operations to isolate trends that may be precursors to incidents or accidents. The IG cited the April 17th in-flight engine failure of a Southwest Boeing 737-700 as among, quote, recent events that have caused concerns over FAA's safety oversight of the Dallas-based carrier in particular. The pilots made an emergency landing emergency landing at Philadelphia International Airport after the 737's left engine failed, blowing out a window, causing the cabin to depressurize. One of the 144 passengers on board was killed, and eight passengers suffered minor injuries. This was the first fatality involving a U.S.-registered passenger airline since the 2009 crash of a Colgan Air Bombardier Q400 turboprop near Buffalo, New York. Anyway, so looks like uh, the FAA is has or somebody has concerns about the FAA's oversight of uh, safety at uh, Southwest Airlines. So, of course, Southwest is saying, I don't know what they're talking about. Everything's fine here. Yeah. Move along. Get out of our way. We're fine. We're safe. I uh, kind of paraphrase that. That's not really the official statement from Southwest Airlines. Uh, but uh, kind of tied to that is the next item, Dana. Uh, passengers file a lawsuit against Southwest Airlines over the fatal engine explosion. I don't know how Southwest was supposed to keep this from exploding, but anyway, eight passengers have sued Southwest Airlines. Um, let's see, on flight 1380 on April 17, uh, one passenger's husband filed a suit on Tuesday in the Supreme Court of the state of New York, County of New York, and it lists the names of the passengers, which I won't because I don't see the point. Uh, they claim or allege that Southwest acted negligently in its responsibilities to maintain and repair its aircraft and aircraft components. Um, so I'm not really sure if the the people that you should be suing here is the airline. I think it may be the manufacturer of the engine, unless they can prove that Southwest somehow was negligent in maintaining the uh, the engine, the CFM 567B engine but uh yeah you know, know. you know in, in this case if if the maintenance records are intact and that they've done everything per the manufacturer and every, everything is uh, you know all the i's dotted and t's across as per the fa's uh, requirement to maintain this the airworthiness of the engine and the aircraft uh, i don't think that they have um um legal grounds in which to, to be able to go after Southwest. But of course, in our society, in our legal system here in the United States, you can sue anybody for anything. So 
it, it, it's it's going to be a tough case. I, I I don't know what will end up happening, um, but uh, certainly you know if this culpability on the southwest part as there was uh, there's there was a uh, an incident uh, outside of Augusta, Georgia, where a uh, um, was it Hartzell prop that had a, a, a fault in it that had a frag, mm-hmm. you know, you know, micro fracture in it. You know, it was proven to be uh, an, an issue. So, you know, in this business, you just don't ever know. So we'll have to wait what, and see what the results are on it. Um, yeah, I, I personally, you know, if you ask me personally, I, I, I hate the legal system here in the States because you can sue anybody over anything and it should be a loser's pay system. So there's no there's really no benefit in people. Uh, you know, there's no really distractor to people suing for whatever they want to do. And, and, and what's telling on this is that the, the 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 poor passenger that passed away, she's not even part of the, the their family is not a part of the lawsuit. So we'll have to wait and see yeah. if there's something else that comes down the road. But um, I, I, I well, certainly, uh, certainly hope that uh, Southwest did everything they did, you know, normally to maintain the, the engine and, and maintain a, a safe aircraft. That's, and that's what we all yeah. hope for. I and yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, we have a, um, a uh, professional test pilot in our chat room. T Kettle 15 says the problem started with the engine, but the cowl is what let loose. So, uh, yeah, so I guess maybe you go after the company that uh, designed the, the engine nacelle and the cowl. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it seems like that would be the place to uh, focus your lawsuit. But uh, I guess the lawyers are just going to go ahead and attack any entity that uh, might have some deep pockets. Exactly. Right? Going to say deep pockets. That's the important thing. It's not the plaintiffs. It's the, the lawyers. They need to be paid. <laughs> <laughs> At uh, least don't get me started with that. I, I have experience uh, in the last couple of years of spending a lot of my money on attorney's fees. Okay. Uh, let's see. Let's move on with, because otherwise I'm going to start crying. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and I might go off just so. Yeah. Um, yeah so, okay. <laughs> take it easy. Take it easy. To, you need to take it easy. Stop crying. Stop yeah. crying. Don't do okay. it. Okay. U.S. Air Force Boeing agreed to the KC-46A tanker delivery schedule. This from the Aerospace Daily and Defense Report. The U.S. Air Force and Boeing have agreed on uh, October 2018 delivery date for the first KC-46A aerial aerial refueling tanker to the Air Force. The agreement represents the next step in a saga to replace the service's Eisenhower-era KC-135 tankers that has lasted close to two decades. Just getting to this agreement has been typical of this program, more difficult than anyone thought possible for what might have been a simple retrofit adding refueling capability to a long-produced commercial aircraft. The U.S. government started looking for new tankers shortly after the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks on the Pentagon and the World Trade Center in New York City. But it was not until 2011 that Boeing landed the eventual contract award for $3.5 billion for 18 tankers. And you'll remember also there was some controversy there because uh, Airbus, I believe, was originally awarded the contract and then Boeing complained and whined and then they uh, they ended up getting the contract. Good thing Nick's not here because he could go off on a rant. Um, anyway, and yet Boeing and its customer, the Air Force, have finally agreed on a path forward. As a result of months of collaboration, the Air Force and Boeing KC-46A teams have reached an agreed joint program schedule to get to the first 18 aircraft deliveries. 
This includes the expectation the first KC-46 aircraft acceptance will deliver and delivery will occur on October or in October 2018 this year, with the remaining 17 aircraft delivered by April 2019. Under Secretary of the Air Force Matthew Donovan said, while the KC-46A flight test program is nearly complete, significant work remains. The Air Force is looking forward to KC-46A first delivery and will continue to work with Boeing on opportunities to expedite the program. The feeling is mutual. Boeing now has more than three dozen KC-46s in production flow from nearly complete to the early stages of being built and is eager to begin deliveries. We're also very excited to start getting the aircraft in their hands, said Leanne Carrot, the president of Boeing Defense Space and Security. Anyway, so that's good. Hopefully they'll be able to uh, to deliver on the deliveries and uh, the Air Force will start getting those new tankers. Does that look like a 76 to you? It's exactly a 767, uh, a modified 767. Yeah. In fact, that was one of the things that um, our test pilot uh, talked a little bit about in our Slack group uh, that uh, talked quite in depth about. And let me see if I can find that while we're while we're talking about this and while he's here with us in the chat room. But that's based on 80s design. Yeah. But the the KC-135 was based on the 707, basically a 50s design. So we're making progress. What do you want, Dana? You want to SR-71 refueler? No, I'd like to fly the SR-71 if you ask me. I mean, I'd love to have that, <laughs> that opportunity. But no, uh, uh, I just would imagine a newer airframe like a 787 with a, uh, a newer uh, airframe design that was more efficient and not inefficient in old avionics. I mean, of course, I don't. Well, I think they have modern avionics in it. I mean, I, I think they're making it. I don't know for sure. I, I don't know all the details. Uh, but... Um, Anyway, T kettle 15 says cockpit is new. So okay. maybe it has upgraded avionics. I only hope so. And he had, he had a, a really cool discussion. Um, T kettle 15. Do you remember exactly where that uh, discussion was? What, what uh, folder in uh, Slack? Maybe the discussion folder it says I'm trying to yeah, uh, displays very much like the 787. Anyway, uh, Let's see. Nope, that's not it. That's another discussion. But he talks about basically the certification process, uh, the FAA, uh, because the, the fact that it is a 767, a commercial airliner that they're modifying to do military service, that the certification is being borne by both the FAA and the military. And uh, so that's supposedly making it much uh, more efficient and I can't vamp anymore. I can't find the, the, uh, the discussion that we had in Slack about that. But, um, it's a, anyway, it's a shame. They just can't start remanufacturing. If they're doing the seven, six in this form that they couldn't redo the seven, five, seven, which is probably one of the most prolific and, uh, most, uh, liked airliner in the world. Yeah. Well, I think the difference there, and I could be wrong about this, so somebody can probably correct me. But I believe that when they decided to scrap the 757 program, they ended up uh, destroying all of the, for lack of a better term, the jigs, the equipment and stuff that makes the fuselage sections and all that kind of stuff. They completely destroyed it. Uh, whereas the 767 
airframe has been in consistent production this whole time. So uh, it's it's a little bit different than just saying, oh, let's crank up the 767 line because it's been actually continuously being uh, manufactured. Now, you know, the airlines haven't been accepting new deliveries of 767 passenger versions, but uh, they're making the 767 freighter and have been and still are. Actually, they're rolling off the line brand new 767 freighters out there. So since they already had the uh, the platform, uh, it was just a matter of modifying it for uh, tanker use. Yeah, it's just it's just it's sad to see the 737 as as a replacement for the 75 is really not. Well, it's not a replacement. There's it, no way. <laughs> Yeah. They, no. they've been touting it as you know the seven three eight hundred and seven three nine hundred, and they can do this, this, and this, and this. It's not a seven five seven, so uh, it's, yeah. it's a missing segment in, in in our business that has yet to be filled. The three twenty one was supposed to uh, hopefully fill some of that niche, but it's just not. It does. It just does not have the capability of performance. Uh, you basically yeah. take a three twenty one and make it a three nineteen with its performance, and then you have the performance of seven five seven. So. Um, yeah, but we have the new market alter- alternative, the uh, 797, which I was reading somewhere. They are saying that perhaps Boeing will actually make an official announcement regarding the, uh, the NMA, the new market alternative or the uh, 797. That's probably what they're going to call this next airplane at uh, Farnborough and next month. That would be fantastic to see. Yeah, we'll look forward yeah. to that. We'll see what happens. Okay, and finally in the news folder, we have an incident at Chicago O'Hare International Airport. (laughs) And let's see, um, maybe I'll play the audio for this first. By the way, this was sent in by Philip Davis in Torquay, England. I I believe I pronounced that correctly. And so let's listen to some of this uh, ATC, uh, live ATC uh, audio. Tower Dynasty 514A, IRS runway 10 left. Dynasty 5140, heavy O'Hare Tower, continue inbound, expect to land clearance about uh, two miles. Okay, that's uh, Dynasty call sign, which is China Airlines. Copy that, we continue, Dynasty 5148. 5140, heavy traffic departing Friday arrival, runway 10 left, clear to land, 07012. Clear to land, runway 10 left, Dynasty 5148. 1198, turn right, heading 180. 180-1198. Okay, I'm pausing this here for a moment. So, Dynasty, the China Airlines 747 uh, freighter, uh, Dash 400 freighter, uh, was cleared to land, and then as it crossed the threshold for landing... Uh, the tower controller told uh, the Delta flight to uh, line up and wait on that runway that the uh, 747 was landing upon. And uh, the uh, the Delta jet says, going off the runway. <laughs> so let me see if I can back it up a little bit so we can hear him say that again. So as they're, as they're about to take the runway or taking the runway, they're looking at the 747 landing because that's what we do because we are pilots and we watch other airplanes landing because especially a big airplane like that 747 that's pretty cool and then he says going off the runway uh dynasty uh, 5148 we are going wrong uh, due to last minute dva from the runway that's 5140 heavy roger fighting 090 fine maintain 5000 
Heading 090, climb maintain 5000, dynasty 5148. Heading 180, runway 3544. Delta 2012, just hold, just hold right there. Uh, 10 left, close. Still hold, close up. 2012. 
trying to remember is that 150 foot wide runway i think it's 150 foot wide runway i think that one's 150 and i think the one to the right of it the is 200 uh, is 200 feet wide so yeah, yeah this one's 150 so, I believe. you know you're not you know, there's there's obviously uh plenty of room for the wheelbase on a 150 foot runway um don't know why or how or I mean, it's just—it's amazing to yeah. me. The professional aviators ended off the side of the ended up off the side of the runway in landing, a touching down. I shouldn't say land; that's a proper improper term. Touching down yeah. in the uh, grass. So I don't know. Monday Monday morning quarterbacking here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully we'll get an update on uh, perhaps what was going on you know, with the airplane and crew coordination and all that kind of stuff. But uh, we'll see. I'm sure that the uh, NTSB. Well, I'm not sure. I'm wondering if the NTSB will be called out to to uh, investigate this one, but I suspect it will be. So hopefully, we'll hear updates about this in the future. Well, any any damage to the aircraft over was it twenty five thousand dollars? Is that the number? I'm not sure what the number is, but they said minor damage. So I'm not sure if it's going to meet the the threshold for for the uh, you know uh, uh, an investigation. But uh, we'll find out. I hey, guess. I hope so. Yeah. Okay, now it's time for the best part of the show, which is your feedback. Captain, incoming message. Word is rolling on, huh? We, nice we one, are uh, rolling. Just two of us. It is kind of, <laughs> it, it, you know, there's less of the uh, back and forth and banter for that matter. And Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's nice. Of course, I miss that. I do miss I'm that. Sure and it's it's almost like it's kind of quiet, even though we're yeah. both uh, we're both well engaged in in the show. But it's just uh, it's kind of weird. What show? What show? Yeah, we're we're, yeah. we're not we're not doing anything. We're just out here hanging out, talking about it, uh, aviation stuff with uh, our our best friends in the chat room. And and I do have to admit, I do have to add bent. Let me say that properly. Uh, I do like those glasses for those folks that are not listening to the uh, cannot see the video on the show that are only listening to the show uh, jeff has some new glasses on and i have to admit they look make him look uh, far more intelligent although he's a very intelligent individual but uh, <laughs> I, th I think they're very uh, debonair on him oh well thank you uh unfortunately they're just uh, single focal length glasses that are kind of set up for the using uh, in front of a computer or doing a, a podcast so is that why your eyes look like twice as big yeah. Okay. Got it. <laughs> no, I just have big eyes. Uh, the better to see you with. Dana. I was going to say you have eyes on me, sir. <laughs> yeah. Um, in our private communication channel, I don't know if uh, Steph shared this with the with the chat room or not, but uh, she sent a a uh, screenshot from her phone of the uh, weather system going through Charlotte and extending pretty much exactly the route that she would take home to her beautiful home in South Carolina. So that, uh, and, and she has a little face with a little, a tear dropping. <laughs> so she's, uh, she's sad that she, uh, is still stuck apparently at her, uh, place of work. So hopefully it'll clear up sometime soon and she'll be able to get home and join and us. There you go. If you're looking for the, what it looks like, there it is. There you go. It's pretty nasty. And if I didn't have my top on, well, I, you know, I have to admit, I did not take my motorcycle today just so they could make sure it's back in time for the show. But uh, if I was driving a vehicle around without a top on it, I would be doing exactly what Dr. Seth is. I wouldn't be moving one inch. So. 
Yeah, that's don't, not a pleasant thing. Don't blame to, her uh, one bit. Drive in driving rain. Okay, let's start off with our first piece of feedback, and this is from Tan May, and uh, he is from some foreign location. And uh, basically, he's asking, uh, we believe, uh, if he can be a pilot. Now, the audio is kind of, um, it's hard to understand. Uh, but l let me play it, and w we'll see if we can decipher it. In higher secondary education, I get 70%. Can I be a pilot in future? Okay, I got the, this guy got 70% at something. And he's wondering if he can be a pilot. So let me, let me see what... If I can figure out what it is. Secondary education, I get. Oh, secondary education. It seventy percent. Can I be a oh. pilot in future? I actually figured it out. He says in uh, in secondary education, I guess that would be like high school uh, in the U.S. Uh, he got a seventy percent. So maybe uh, I would say maybe a C student. Wondering if he can be a pilot. Well, Tanmay, look at me. Look at Dana. <laughs> We're pilots. Yep. If we can do it, 70%, you know, you can do it too. And isn't, no, correct me if I'm wrong, Dana, but the tests that you take for like private pilot uh, license and other things, what's the threshold for passing? I think it's 70 or 75%. 70%, I think. I have to, so, I, I do have, Tan May, I have to make an admission. I have to make an honest admission. When I first took my private pilot exam, I didn't pass it. There because go. I didn't study very much, but that's that was way, 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 way before I was really serious about being a pilot. So um, since then, yeah, uh, close to 100 percent on every one of them. So, uh, yeah, if you put the effort forth, I don't you know, Tan may to answer your question. The answer is if you put an effort forth and it doesn't matter whether it's you, Tan may or any other uh, potential aviator out there. If you put the effort forth and get to pass the written exams, which, oh, by the way, in my honest opinion, are probably the hardest, or is the hardest part of uh, any type of certificate you get out there. So um, I uh, I think you can succeed. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I mean, you don't have to be a straight A student. You don't have to make a hundred percent on everything to to be a pilot. It's there's more to it. I mean, it's important to um, to have an academic education, uh, but it's also important to have you know the flying skills necessary to do this job as well. So, yeah, I mean, I'd say go for if it. If you look at somebody that's a musician, right? Either you have the ability to pick up a, a musical instrument and play it, even after, you know, working hard and, and studying and you, you learn how to play that musical instrument or you're just really not good at it. So it, it's the same with aviation. Either you, you know, pick up the AV, you know, the, the airplane, you take your instructor up, you learn how to fly. And if you can get it, you can get it. If you can't, it's one of those things. If, it, if it's not for you, it's just not for you. So, uh, Tammy, what I would recommend other than just a written exam is uh, go ahead and see if you can uh, go ahead and take a discovery flight and see if you really enjoy uh, being in the air. There are a lot of people that don't enjoy the motion and get sick. And uh, to be honest with you, I, I for a lot of years thought that I was going to be faced with motion sickness and not be able to do this job and why I delayed, um, partially the reason why I delayed uh, uh, furthering my career when I was much younger. Uh, other than making excuses, I decided that uh, I probably couldn't handle the motion, which honestly uh, in the sky, I'm fine. 
when I'm on a cruise ship, not so much. I have to take uh, Bonine to make sure I don't get sick or scuba diving. So uh, it really depends on the situation you're in. So um, I would definitely give it a try to see how you feel. Absolutely. I don't know if from where he, from wherever he lives, if they have that kind of program or not. But if they do, I agree. Uh, get yourself one of those introductory flights and see if you like that sensation of flying. Uh, most of us do. Yeah. It's an incredible feeling. All right. Um, next one is also from another part of the world. And in this case, we know for sure because he says so. Uh, so let's play Arun. Uh, hey, Captain Jeff. It's, I'm from India, and... His uh, recording cut out a little bit. I think Arun, Arun from India. I've been listening to your podcast for like, I don't know, like three weeks. I'm at, like, I just listened to the 9-11 memorial one that you just did. I think I did that uh, a few years ago, Arun, so... I just didn't, I didn't just do that. So you're, you're a little bit behind, but. And that was really touching by the way. And I'd like to tell you two things, basically. First off, um, I understand that you had a podcast called the Catholic pilots podcast or something like that. Am I, am I saying that right? Um, I love how, you know, you keep those two things, um, separate in this one, you know, like religion and aviation separate. It makes the. It makes, um, you know, the podcast feel a lot more inclusive. And I feel like you respect everyone on the podcast. So just great job there. I love what you're doing. And the second thing I want to ask you is um, recently um, Boeing, I mean, or General Electric, they started testing their new GE 9X engine and they slapped it on a Boeing 747 and it looks absolutely massive. So I was wondering, it looks um, twice as big and it produces twice as much as thrust as, you know, a regular 747 or a 787 engine. So isn't it logical to think that it would um, it would use up almost double the amount of fuel? And if indeed it does use double the amount of fuel, what kind of fuel can you expect while using, you know, while using two of these engines instead of four, you know, smaller engines, are there any significant savings? Um, again, great job on the podcast. Keep doing it. I love it. Um, I have like about 310 episodes to catch up on. So I'm looking forward to doing that. Great podcast, by the way. Thank you. Well, thank you, Aaron. Um Yeah. Um, good luck catching up on all those podcasts. <laughs> Hope you have a lot of free time. And, uh, yeah, um, not sure when I did that, uh, 9-11 podcast, but it was not last year and I don't believe it was a year before it was probably two or three years ago, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, it's, it's, uh, evergreen I'd say because that event occurred, uh, in 2001. Um, so the question you have about the, uh, the test flat platform uh, for the GE NX or nine X or whatever engine was hanging on the 747 wing. I don't believe not could be wrong about this, but I don't believe there's any intention at all to replace two of the engines on the wing of the 747 with one much larger engine. Uh, I think it's just, they're just using that aircraft as a test bed um, and for other airplanes, that engine is not really meant to be powering the uh, 747, but let's go with your 
conjecture that uh, the possibility of using that one bigger engine to replace two smaller engines. And you said, you know, it, it produces twice as much thrust, which I'm I'm assuming you're correct with that. I would imagine that the fuel flow, uh, fuel consumption uh, for the bigger engine, the G, then the newer generation engine would be less or few, uh, yeah, less than the combined total of uh, the two engines. So there would be some advantage, I think, with the larger, more modern technology engine over the older technology, smaller thrust engines. Uh, so I don't think you could just say because it produces twice as much thrust, it's going to use twice as much fuel. Um, so that's uh, what I would say about that. And what was the other thing that he was asking about regarding that? Was that it? Uh, that was pretty much it. And the, okay. the use on, on the 747. Uh, the, the reason why, in my opinion, that they would do it on a 747 is only because of the fact that it has the two engines on each side. So it makes it a lot more stable platform that if you have any issues with you know too much thrust or uh, any issues with the engine failing, et cetera, et cetera, that you have a, a platform in which it's really stable, real big, and can handle um, any type of excessive loads. Um, and it's specifically designed that way. That's why they, the engineers would go ahead and put it on that airplane, uh, you know, versus like doing it on a triple seven, because now you only have one engine out there. Um, so you have a lot more asymmetric or, or, uh, asymmetric drag or thrust. So I, I think it's an effective tool in order to be able to test that engine. Now, I agree with you on that, Jeff, that the, uh, the fuel flow on, a, on the newer engines is far significantly less than, uh, even the, the 747 engines combined. Um, just look at our aircraft alone. I mean, you've got, uh, uh, just compared to the 90 versus the 88, I mean, it's just, it's a uh, in it's not that big of a leap, but it's an a significant enough leap that that there's a that there really is a big difference in the fuel consumption. So, um, and only ha one has to look at uh, uh, you know a 78 Chevy uh, Cadillac compared to a you know 2015 Dodge Durango like what I have. I mean, I'm burning far less fuel. You know, you might get seven, eight, mile, nine miles per gallon on a, you know, 78 or an 80 caddy versus my, you know, almost 20 miles a gallon on a car that's almost uh, almost the same weight, if not a little bit more weight. So they've come far long and far from uh, what they had in old technology versus new technology. So it does not surprise me that they have the aircraft, uh, the GE, the next generation uh, engine on the 74 and, and doing and flight tests with it. So it's probably standard practice. I was reading, uh, it may have been an aviation forum or some kind of an article. There was some kind of discussion regarding, you know, what, what it would take to re-engine the 747 to go from a four engine to a two engine configuration. And they said, uh, yeah, it's just not going to happen because basically they have to make a new wing, uh, to support all the, the plumbing and everything and the structural, um, characteristics of the wing and, you know, mounting the engine in a, in a different place than the current mounts. And it was basically showing that uh, you're not going to just slap on, you know, take the four engines off and just slap on two um, more modern, larger uh, thrust, you know, more fuel efficient engines on the 747. It's, it's a major undertaking to, uh, yeah, I mean, you have to, to do, to do stress that. Tests and on, it just doesn't make sense. Stress yeah. tests on the wings and uh, tea kettle brings up a very good point. You have to have a, a, you know, a new rudder design because, you know, it's a completely different, uh, 
uh, you know, you, you're looking at different ERA moments. Um, landing gear, I may or may not agree with that, but certainly the wing structure would have to be reevaluated. So yeah. But yeah, I, I think in the in the article that I was uh, reading, uh, they did mention the the landing gear systems as well. For some reason, had would have to be modified for some reason. Um, but it may have something to do with the placement of the engine on the wing. Um, but I don't know. But the rudder, yeah, you lose one engine, you've lost the equivalent of two engines, and uh, so the the rudder's got to be more more beef uh, have more authority, I guess. Sure. Yeah. So anyway, in other words, no, you're not going to, you're not going to see them do that, but um, uh, it's a good question though. Uh, Arun, uh, thank you for, for joining the community at here at the APG. And if you have any other questions, as you listen to the previous 310 shows that you haven't heard yet, please don't hesitate. We uh, appreciate all kinds of feedback. I have nothing but time, but I'll tell you what, that's a lot of time. That's, a, That's lot a lot of time. I don't even want to calculate. And, and, <laughs> and Ron, I can assure you, I mean, since I've been back since about episode 240-ish, um, we haven't we haven't talked about uh, about September 11th, so it's been a while. Anyways. Yeah. That's it. Anywho, uh, you want to go for the next item in the uh, news folder? Sure. Flamethrower? Flame throw a drone. Now we have our drone sound effect. Go ahead. All right. Looks like I get uh, a picture. Well, there's no actual verbiage with it. Oh, here. Then let me do it then. Uh, perhaps I was going to put some more stuff in there. Uh, the feedback is from Chris. And he says, with the recent debates on drones, here's a link to a video of a drone that gets used to clear debris from power lines. And uh, this is from Chris Cheatwood, I believe. And then he has a link to reddit.com discussion about this drone uh, that actually has a flamethrower mounted on it. And the video uh, included in this, which we'll have in the in the uh, show notes, you can click on and then you can watch this video and it's pretty cool. This uh, looks like a six rotor uh, drone up above some high tension power lines. And I'm not sure exactly what it is that's caught, what kind of debris this is. Almost looks like it looks like a parachute or a, uh, or a balloon or something like a hot air balloon canopy or I don't know. But uh, the drone is above it and using the flamethrower uh, to burn the debris off of the high tension power lines and when i was watching it i'm thinking what wouldn't that flamethrower actually burn through those lines <laughs> and then you have much more of a problem but uh apparently and then somebody in the um, in the discussion says yeah now you what you don't see it's out of the picture out of the frame is the other drone that's there to put out the fires from the flamethrower drone because this piece of debris that's hanging from the high tension wire that's getting torched by the uh, by the flamethrower drone falls and there's all kinds of dry grass and stuff on the ground i'm thinking yeah now you're going to have like a forest fire uh, or some kind of a wildfire because of that but uh, anyway yeah so pretty interesting that's what i'm gonna say i wouldn't be worried about burning metal wires as much as i'd be worried about uh, burning the uh, the dry grass underneath it so yeah it's well addressed so I, I had meant to um, 
let me I can let me see if I can uh, click on something to get it to play. Um, okay, it's playing for me, but I don't hear any sound. So why do I not hear any sound? I have to... There it is. I hear the sound now. <laughs> Pretty good, Dana. <laughs> you are a blowhard. Uh, yes. Oh well. Yeah, well. Uh, so you're gonna have. You know what, dear listener, you're gonna just have. To... Wait, maybe I got it in this one. No, where's the uh, volume thing? It's the same place that my my verbiage was as well. <laughs> Shoot, it's not there. Oh well. What's really cool? The the video I watched had the uh, flamethrower sound. I think coming off of it. Maybe I was just dreaming. Anyway, whatever. Check it out in the show notes. There it is. I hear it again. Sounds like a Coleman lantern or a or a cook stove or something. But anyway, um, moving on, John, uh, military. Oh, we had to play the drone thing again, I guess, huh? <laughs> sounds like me snoring. Uh, the UK loses watchkeeper to accident. Okay, with this latest incident, this is from the uh, Janes.com. I'd be happy to read that for you, uh, Jeff, if you'd like, because I missed the last one. Yeah, go ahead. All right. Uh, I'm, I'm scrolling back here a little bit. John, military drone losses. In episode 320, you talk about the unmanned drones and the military losing them. Last week, I was walking the coastal path in Wales when I saw a drone mentioned in the article attached. The drone was flying within the Cardigan Bay military firing range. So let's see what it says here. It says, within the latest incident, the UK has now lost five or it's of its 54 watchkeeper UAVs to accident source Thales. The UK military lost another Thales WK-450 watchkeeper to an accident on 13th June when one of the British Army's unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs, crashed near West Wales. Try to say that if you times fast. West Wales, West Wales, West Wales. West Wales, West Wales. Wales, Wales. Airport near Aberporth. I'm sorry, Nick, if I got that wrong. Uh, the UAV. I think, and is it? Um, is it's not Thales? I believe it is Talus. Talus, something like that. It says maybe somebody w- can help West us out Wales from a- uh, airport at Albert Ab- Aberporth. Ab- yeah, I know, but I'm talking about the company. Oh. Uh, it's not Thales. It's uh, Talus, I think. Okay, well, but I, somebody will correct us in the chat room. Hopefully, sure. because we're, we're striving for at least fifty percent. I think we're at 50% still. Close to it, at least. Yeah. The UAV came down close to the airfield from which it was operating, bringing to five the number of watchkeepers that have now been lost. The UK Ministry of Defense confirmed the incident but declined to divulge, divulge details except to say that the investigation has been launched. Developed from the Israeli-developed Elbit Herms 450, the watchkeeper, is operated by the British Army as an unarmed intelligence, surveillance, target acquisition, and reconnaissance platform. With 54 air vehicles having been been acquired, the Army is now down to 49. TikTok. It almost sounds like 99 bottles of beer on the wall. 99 bottles of beer. Pass one round. Um, I'm sorry. 49 is a result of its losses. A senior service official previously told Janes that expected attrition losses were built into the original number of watchkeepers procured, though it was not noted 
that this is to enable the platform to be used in less permissive environments rather than to cover for expected accidents. Yeah, so the translation there is when they knew that there was going to be a certain attrition rate of these 54 air vehicles, they were assuming it was attrition due to being in a situation where they're shot down, not for somebody operating them and crashing them. That was not built into the attrition calculation. No, no, I I would agree with that. So, um, yeah, of the five watchkeepers that have been crashed to date, three have been lost in the last 12 months. The the latest incident comes some nine months after the fleet-wide grounding order has was imposed. After two of these losses, losses was lifted in September 2017. Last paragraph here: the watchkeeper. In 47 Regiment Royal Artillery that operates that it were due to achieve full operating capability earlier in 2018, but this milestone was postponed after the platform failed to obtain a key flight safety certificate in 2000, November of 2017. Watchkeeper has flown thousands of hours supported by British troops in Afghanistan and could be sent on operations now if required. A uh, spokesman told Jane's that, and excuse me, told Jane's at the time that the failure was disclosed in March, adding the release to service safety certification, a certificate, excuse me, is expected later this year. So they've lost a few operationally. Yeah. And they had a stand, an operational stand down grounding. And I guess they, they need to figure out, okay. We only have so many of these things, and we can't be crashing them. So makes me look forward. Learn how to fly the darn. It things. makes me really look forward to flying the Syracuse. Just saying. Yeah. Okay, number five, Miles. Miles writes: When thinking about pilotless aviation, consider trains. Here it is, or here it is, ideal as now possible. Every inch of track and train is monitored and controlled by a central office. Why then? An engineer even on a freight train carrying no passengers? Besides union rules, an engineer is there. An experienced human thinks non-digitally. This is augmented by the experience. That is, what's not in the manual, for example, Murphy's Law is always cocked and ready to spring. All this can be appreciated in the 2010 movie Unstoppable. An airline needs two pilots simply because of height, speed, as well as rails. Okay. Flight paths are paths, not rails. Incidentally, losing a commercial plane is expensive in lives and cost of planes. Okay, Miles, thank you uh, for that. And yes, you were, uh, we share your opinion that um, if everything goes as planned with a uh, completely automated or uh, autonomous vehicle, then you're good to go. But as we all know, uh, things happen that uh, engineers could not foresee and they couldn't, uh, they can't uh, program something for every single combination of issues that might present themselves. And that's why it is imperative, especially when you're flying around passengers. But I'd say flying around any kind of a air vehicle that might be a threat or a risk to human life, you have to have the human brain on board to analyze the situation and think outside of the box, as they say. Because uh, we can count several incidents that have occurred in the past couple of decades that if the human was not on board, they would have been complete and tragic losses. So 
comes down to complete and total ability for deductive reasoning. And a computer cannot do that. And they can think in logic, but they cannot, it cannot use deductive reasoning, taking all inputted uh, information and making the logical, uh, logical uh, decision is what it can do. But we use all information, including our senses to make a decision. Number six, class Bravo, Chris writes from KSQL, which is uh, on the, uh, in Northern California. Uh, APG crew, I noticed recently on FlightAware that the aircraft involved in the engine explosion, depressurization, and fatality operating as Southwest Flight 1380 recently flew from Everett to Victorville. See attached. So he included a screenshot from, I don't know, uh, probably FlightAware. Did he say that already in here? Uh, yes, yes. FlightAware. Uh, that uh, the uh, November 772 Sierra Whiskey uh, was operating as flight Southwest Flight 8701 from Everett, Washington to Victorville. And, and they have a little map showing its route and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, he, c- he continues. Clearly, the aircraft was repaired enough to fly again. So why is it apparently being put out to pasture and not put back into service if it's airworthy? Tail number stigma considered about uh, concerned about undetected damage and captain Jeff, didn't you recently fly a mad dog there? Thanks as always for adding insight to these aviation mysteries. Might I suggest a plane tales about this so-called boneyard? Okay. So the, he's talking about uh, Victorville, California, um, Victor, Charlie, Victor, uh, the uh, airfield. I did not fly the uh, mad dog to Victorville. I flew it to, not too far away from there in San Bernardino, California. And in the case of the November 926 uh, Delta Lima, I believe, call sign or uh, tail number, that one was being retired forever. It was never going to fly again. Uh, this one, I suspect, is not being put out to pasture to be, you know, put to sleep forever. I believe that uh, maybe, I'm not sure really what the reason is for for putting it at uh, Victorville, but it looks like they're putting it into storage for some reason. Uh, but I have no idea, actually. Uh, do you have any ideas, Dana, why this might be heading to Victorville? I, I don't think it's that old of an airplane. Well, it may not be that, but it uh, it may be a move on Southwest's part. I think, uh, you know, and this is completely conjecture in, in my uh, opinion only, but maybe if, if it is being put to pasture. It's in uh, in the memory of the one passenger that passed away, Jennifer Riordan, that uh, was on that aircraft, and she was the you know, young lady that got uh, uh, sucked halfway out of the airplane. So maybe it's out of respect for the fact that that's what happened on the airplane, and uh, they just have decided to go ahead and, and put it to rest. That's a possibility, I guess. It's a, yeah, it's just it's a complete conjecture on my part. Yeah. So. Oh, I know what it is. You know, we talked about earlier in the news section that the uh, FAA or their, the inspector general is uh, looking at the FAA's oversight of safety at Southwest. And maybe this is Southwest's effort to uh, try to hide the airplane in the evidence. Yeah, probably. No, that's probably no, not it. I'm know. just kidding. If anybody's listening from Southwest Airlines, I'm just kidding. But uh, perhaps if you know something about this, um, let's see, our flight test guy says they do a lot of heavy maintenance at VCV. 
also born also a boneyard there like Mojave and Roswell and other places. Okay, so yeah, so it's not necessarily going there to be retired. It may be actually getting there to be uh, to have some extensive repairs done to or it. Or as uh, our very good friend of ours, Liz, made a very good point here. Could it have been anything to do with the lawsuit? Maybe that's evidence. Very good point. I don't know. So who knows? Yeah, where they have to where they have to sequester it and get it out of the way so that uh, more uh, more investigation can be done on it or something. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, it's just it, yeah, it's it's possibly. involved in a an active investigation. I was thinking more of the uh, you know the thought of heart versus uh, that. But Liz, you're uh, you probably hit the nail on the head. Be my guess because until the actual investigation and or lawsuit is complete. I would imagine the aircraft is probably going to be out of service. So, very good point. We will see. Yeah, we'll see. All good points, I think. Okay, uh, RH writes in, uh, Romeo Hotel, aviation community's huge loss. And uh, he says, uh, hey, APG crew, I want to say that I'm thoroughly enjoying the build-up to Captain Nick and Dr. Steph's introduction to the show. I just listened to episode 99. Oh, I see what he's saying. So he's he's going back. He has the syndrome, and he's listening to some of my early shows, and uh, he's kind of seeing the evolution of the show uh, back when I was doing it, for the most part, solo, except for the one, uh, the one uh, exception, which was uh, episode number 90, where uh, Dana joined me when we were on layover in Savannah. Uh, but, uh, it wasn't until, I don't know, 150 ish or maybe more. Yeah. Probably about 150 that I started to have uh, full-time co-hosts on the show. And so that's what he's referring to here. So I, he, again, he says, I want to say I'm thoroughly enjoying the buildup to captain Nick and Dr. Steph's introduction to the show. Uh, I just listened to episode 99 and it was only a couple of episodes ago where we hear first officer Dana for the first time. I can't wait to see how Dr. Steph and Captain Nick become part of the show. I try to listen to current episodes as well. A few weeks ago, you discussed the fatal accident in Daytona Beach where a wing detached from a PA-28. The FAA examiner on board that flight was well-known and very well-respected for his positive contribution to the aviation community. John Ozma did my check ride for both my single and multi-engine commercial ratings when I attended the Delta Connection Academy in Sanford, Florida. John did thousands of check rides over an illustrious career, and you'd be surprised how many pilots know his name, either from an actual check ride or a student that flew with him. Although they were, uh, although they were over 15 years ago, I still remember my flights with John. His calm, friendly demeanor ensured the applicant was free to fly the plane and demonstrate their abilities. He made a point to put me at ease and even joked when my, when my landing was firm on my commercial single check ride. He asked, Mr. R.H., what was that? I said, that was my private pilot landing. He responded, maybe a student pilot landing, but not a private pilot landing. You can do much better than that. Show me again. He was fair, and he knew when an applicant simply had a bad landing. And my next one was near perfect. I want your listeners to know the aviation community lost a great man that day. And those who flew with John Asma should consider themselves very lucky to have learned from a true professional and beacon of aviation safety. John taught us, taught all of us to follow the rules, follow the procedures, never take shortcuts. 
His accident was out of his control, but I'm sure he fought it to the very end. Thank you, John. Tailwinds and clear skies forever. Again, Romeo Hotel, one of the co-hosts of Opposing Bases, ATC Air Traffic Control Talk podcast. I believe that's the uh, the full name of the show. But anyway, Opposing Bases, check it out. It's a very uh, interesting, educational, and entertaining show. Yeah, and, and it's really a completely uh, diametrically uh, designed show compared to what we do. We talk about everything from our side of the cockpit, right? Which is the, our view from our side of the cockpit. So they talk about their view from the opposite side of the cockpit, which is being controllers. So it really is a, a, a nice compliment to, to our show. And, and I think uh, anybody that listens to, to us here at APG should take the time to go ahead and, and take a, take a listen because it, but we should we should also add though RH and AG are air traffic controllers, but they are both also pilots, so they have that dual yeah, perspective. That's true. That's a very good point, Jeff. Yeah. All right. Um, number eight, Brett says hello to the APG crew. This is Brett, an airplane enthusiast from Ohio. I've been listening for a few years and have sent some occasional notes or article links. I was looking for the APG crew descriptions and noticed that Dana's bio will need to be updated to his new rank of captain. Again, congratulations. Thank you. Now, I'm not sure if I, I don't think I updated the um, website one, but the, uh, the iPhone and Android app uh, has been updated. I just haven't gotten around to the other thing yet. But thank you very much for that. Um, and since I'm here, I have a question. I was in a flight some time ago, and as the pilot maneuvered the plane to the end of the taxiway, ready to pull onto the runway for departure, he made the announcement that the airport had just closed that runway, and we would have to taxi across the airport to the alternate open runway. I don't recall now the particular details, since I procrastinated too long to send this to you, of the, uh, so he doesn't remember all the details of the trip. Have you ever had that situation where your plane is ready to ready to depart and then a last minute change switches things around? Be well. And I keep hoping to hear you say you'll be at Osh 18, Oshkosh Air Venture 18. But it sounds like you're going over to that F place again, Farmborough or something. <laughs> Just kidding. Have fun. Sounds like a great time. Yes, we are. We're going to Farmborough. Um, but um, maybe... Oshkosh 19 uh, will be on the schedule of events for us. Uh, who knows? We haven't, you know, we don't plan that far ahead, but uh, that's a possibility. Anyway, uh, regarding the situation that you're talking about here, where uh, you're you're about to pull onto the runway and then they close the runway and they have to go to the other side of the airport. I, I think what usually, well, I think what happened here is that, you know, each runway has two directions, right? So let's say it's a north-south runway. You have one eight and three six. If you're taxiing out to runway three six and then the winds kind of shift because of the pressure system coming through, a frontal system comes through and then the winds shift around, you know, because we always like to take off into the wind if we can. Um, so that probably happened as we were taxiing out to runway, let's say three six. Uh, so in this case, they turn what we, what we say is turn the airport around. So now they're going to be operating on 1-8, the southerly runways. So that means that you have to go taxi. And it may feel like you're actually going to a completely different runway, but I bet that the runway that you actually taxied to was the same runway. It was just the other end of the runway. But I mean, I could be wrong. Maybe there, there are times where 
you may go to, depending on the airport configuration, let's say Chicago O'Hare, if they ended up, um, you know, closing certain runways because of the wind, uh, there is a good chance maybe that you'll end up going to a completely different runway. But uh, it happens. It's um, it's not rare. It's um, it's it doesn't happen all the time. But it's really not uncommon at all. Would you say, Dana? I think that's uh, actually more common than not common. Uh, yeah. The winds change on a regular basis, and uh, it's. It's very common, and, and and I agree with you, Jeff. It could be an opposite direction runway. It could be an intersecting runway. It depends on where the wind shift and how much of the wind is prevalent. I mean, if it's a if it's a cro- severe crosswind, they might use a you know crossing runway. Now, certain airports like the one we operate out of Atlanta only have east west runways. So, uh, it, in our case, it would be just a complete opposite direction switch around. So. Versus, you know, a uh, 90 degree wind uh, off one side, you might get uh, 70 degrees off. So it, it, but instead of it being a, you know, 110 degree, ta- you know, 110 degrees off, which is slight tailwind, that's why they might switch the airport around. So it, it's any anybody's guess. Um, and it's not really a big deal uh, in, in any case. Uh, the biggest thing is, is, you know, it depends on where you end up in the line. Because if, if if you're switching runways, uh, you could be close to the top of the you know the beginning of the line, and they switch the runway around, and you get all these airplanes behind you that are blocking up the taxiways. You know, it's anybody's guess at that point. Usually, they try to keep the order somewhat familiar, or sim- similar to what you were lined up with originally, but you know they can't always do that. So uh, that can cause delays in itself. And you have to make sure that uh, you still have the minimum fuel required for uh, completing your your flight. Uh, that's something that we have to consider. And the other thing is we have to make sure that we have the the uh, proper uh, performance data for mm-hmm. the newly assigned runway as well. And that's spoken by a truly seasoned captain that would look yeah, at those things. Yeah, but Dana that too. <laughs> of course, I would look at those things. But yes, Absolutely. Those are, that's very true. All right. Well, I think this might be a good time for us to play this week's installment of the outrageously popular segment of the show we call Plane Tales by the Old Pilot. So, Old Pilot, take it away. The Old Pilot's Plane Tales. Murder on the flight deck. I'm on a short holiday, so won't be on the show this week. However, I would hate to leave you without a plane tale, so here are a couple of short stories of great significance. It was the 7th of May 1964 and Pacific Airlines Flight 773 was heading off from Reno to San Francisco via Stockton, California. The aircraft was a Fairchild F-27 twin-engine turboprop with 33 passengers on board and being flown by the 52-year-old captain Ernest Clark and his younger first officer Ray Andress. In the cabin, looking after the passengers, was flight attendant Margaret Schaefer. On arriving at Stockton, a couple of passengers got off and ten climbed on for the final leg to San Francisco, bringing the total number to 41. The disembarking passengers noted that sitting directly behind the cockpit was a brooding passenger, Francisco Gonzalez. Gonzalez was a warehouse worker living in San Francisco, but his life was in turmoil. It hadn't always been like that. 
In the past, he had represented the Philippines in the 1960 Summer Olympics as part of the sailing team, but now things had gone bad. He was deeply in debt, and nearly half of his income was committed to loan repayments. The strain was causing his marriage to fall apart, and over the preceding months, during fits of depression, he had told his friends and relatives that he would die on May the 6th or 7th. During the preceding week, he had bought himself a Smith & Weston 357 Magnum from a friend of a friend, and the day before his trip, he had shown the gun to numerous people at the airport and even told one person that he intended to kill himself. He had taken himself off to Reno and spent the night gambling, mentioning to the casino dealer that he didn't care how much he lost because it wouldn't make any difference after tomorrow. Now on the last leg of his return flight, Gonzalez sat staring at the flight deck door. The aircraft took off and was about 10 minutes out of Stockton when Oakland Air Traffic Control Centre got a garbled call. It was later analysed and it was the last transmission from Flight 773's first officer, Ray Andres. Skipper's shot. We've been shot. I was trying to help. Then the radar return from the F-27 disappeared from the control centre displays. Oakland asked other aircraft to look out for it, and then a United Airlines flight called that they had a black cloud of smoke coming up through the undercast in their 3.30 or 4 o'clock. It looked like an oil or gasoline fire. Witnesses said that the Fairchild aircraft had suddenly gone into a steep dive and crashed into a rural hillside in southern Contra Costa County. Everyone on board was killed. At the time, Danville, near the scene of the disaster, was a one-horse town that had just become a two-horse town of about 13,000 people, and in the days after the crash, it swelled with investigators and the press who swarmed around the loved ones of the dead, who came to claim bodies that overflowed to a makeshift morgue at the village theatre. Investigators from the Civil Aeronautics Board and the Federal Bureau of Investigation examined the crash site and found the handgun that Gonzalez possessed among the tangled and burnt wreckage. The gun now held six spent cartridges. In the emotionless report that they issued, they stated that the total evidence clearly indicates that the captain and first officer of Flight 773 were shot by a passenger. As a result, the uncontrolled aircraft began the descent, which ended in impact with the hill. Postmortems showed that both pilots had been shot in the head from behind before Gonzalez had turned the weapon on himself. They also discovered that Gonzalez had purchased insurance at the airport before he left Reno, worth $105,000, and named his wife as the beneficiary. There were many orphans created that day, including the three daughters of Captain Ernie Clark. 
Julia Clark, however, didn't let the loss of her father crush her love of flying, and she went on to become one of the first female pilots to work for a major airline. And she contributed as an aerobatic airshow pilot for many years. In the aftermath of the crash, civil air regulation amendments became effective that required the doors separating the passenger cabin from the crew compartment on all scheduled air carriers and commercial aircraft to be kept locked in flight. Sadly though, the change in regulations didn't completely prevent further incidents. And should you ever be in Atlanta airport and pass through the tunnel to security next to the United Airlines ticket counter in North Terminal, keep an eye out for the Eastern Airlines Pilots Memorial Plaque. On it, you should look for the name Hartley, J.E., along with the date he was hired. When you find it, you might want to stand there for a moment and remember this story. For this second tale, we have moved on a few years from the awful crash of Flight 773, but only as far as 1970. The date was the 17th of March, and a DC-9 from Eastern Airlines was carrying 68 passengers from Newark up to Boston. It was St. Patrick's Day. There were the usual two pilots and three cabin crew to look after the passengers on that short flight. They weren't airborne long, about ten minutes or so, when the senior stewardess, Christine Peterson, started moving amongst the passengers to collect the fares. In those days, it was common for shuttle flight fares to be collected on board. As she approached a passenger, Mr. John DeVivo, a young man in his twenties in dark glasses and with a chain around his neck sporting a skull and crossbones, she asked for his $15.75. DeVivo claimed that he didn't have enough money to pay, and reaching inside his jacket, he then pulled out a handgun and demanded to see the captain. She led DeVivo up to the cockpit and asked if they could come in. When the pilots refused, she told him the man had a gun, and the captain said, Well, bring him in here then. In today's world of flight deck security following 9-11, it might seem an act of madness to allow an armed hijacker into the cockpit, but in the 70s the attitude to hijackings was very different. It was the usually accepted procedure to negotiate with hijackers, and in the main to accede to their demands. The pilots may well have expected DeVivo to demand to be taken to Cuba, which was often the destination of choice. Most hijackings were made with specific aims, or perhaps publicity for a cause, putting pressure on governments, political asylum or monetary gain. They were the common reasons to take over an aircraft. Suicide was an extremely rare event. The common strategy tactic, which was approved by the United States, taught crew members to comply with the hijackers' demands, to get the plane to land safely and then let the security forces handle the situation. Armed with a thirty-eight revolver, 
Once in the cockpit, DeVivo demanded that the captain turn the aircraft out to sea. Just take me east, he said. Captain Robert Wilbur was in charge of the aircraft that day. He was a fairly new captain, having only been promoted six months earlier. He asked his flight attendant to return to the cabin and let the passengers know that everything was all right, and then he began to try to reason with DeVivo. Christine left, and for about 20 minutes it was all quiet. On the flight deck, the pilots discovered that their hijacker didn't have anywhere he wanted to go. He just ordered the pilots to fly over the sea until they ran out of fuel. As they headed out over the sea, without any warning, DeVivo shot first off Sir Hartley in the chest, before turning to the captain and shooting Wilbur twice in the arms. Despite being grievously wounded, First Officer Hartley saw his chance and made a grab for the weapon. They fought, but Hartley managed to wrestle the weapon clear and shot DeVivo three times before he collapsed. The fight, though, wasn't over. Although wounded and lying between the pilot's seats, DeVivo rose up and began clawing at Wilbur trying to make the aircraft crash. The captain retrieved the revolver from the centre console where it lay and hit the hijacker over the head, knocking him senseless. The passengers were only dimly aware of the battle until the cockpit door came open and two legs covered with blood stuck out. Knowing his fellow pilot was in deep trouble, Captain Wilbur wasted no time and landed his aircraft at Boston, it was very fast and very smooth, his passengers remarked. On clearing the runway, ignoring his own injuries, Wilbur called over the radio. My co-pilot is shot. Where the hell do you want me to park this thing? Five troopers met the aircraft and brought out the struggling DeVivo who was still alive. But sadly, the same couldn't be said for James Hartley, who had lost his life in an effort to protect the passengers and crew aboard Flight 1320. Captain Wilbur and John DeVivo were both treated in hospital, and DeVivo was charged with murder and arraigned at East Boston District Court. He was sent to Bridgewater State Hospital for mental evaluation and then to Suffolk County Jail at Charles Street. While awaiting trial in jail... He died. He tied a neckerchief to his cell bars and hanged himself. James Hartley and Captain Wilbur were both proclaimed heroes, and on March 24, 1970, the U.S. Senate passed a resolution that commended them both for extraordinary heroism and competence. In addition, in 1970, James Hartley was posthumously awarded the Flight Safety Foundation Heroism Award, which was established to recognize civil aircraft crew members or ground personnel whose heroic actions exceeded the requirements of their jobs and, as a result, saved lives or property. The award is presented only in years in which a nominee clearly meets the standards for heroism. Eastern Airlines named their training facility 
the James E. Hartley Training Center. Beneath an engraving of a set of pilot's wings, the plaque that hung there read, Through the memory of First Officer James E. Hartley, who died defending his passengers, fellow crew members and his aircraft on March 17, 1970, this building and its purposes are dedicated. To the example of Captain Robert M. Wilbur, who, despite his own serious wounds, landed the aircraft safely and skillfully, the people of Eastern Airlines dedicate themselves. Another great plane tale from the old pilot. We know him as Captain Nick. And, uh, wow, that was... Uh, Quite a couple of stories. That was a great, I mean, of course, my hometown, Boston. So, know all about that one. Great, great job telling it, Nick, of course, as always. Let's see. Oh, we have somebody joining us. Who could it be? Hold on. I have to figure out the audio here because I'm going to try and get through my car's Bluetooth. So, okay. I just don't know how much. Uh, do you have any uh, battery left in your phone? Well, I have to have it connected to the car right now because I have no battery left. Okay. But let me put it a speaker instead. Oh, yeah, that's better. Is that better? Okay. Phone call. Completely. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Sorry. <laughs> the car thought I was making a phone call. <laughs> um, oh, where did you go? Yeah, so if okay. uh, you're... Um, I don't, I don't know if we'll have, yeah, we'll have this in the audio. Uh, so Steph is joining us. She's been stuck in, uh, the parking garage, yep. uh, at, at work, uh, because the Jeep, uh, is, is, uh, without top and, uh, the, the weather outside is quite frightful in uh, the Charlotte area. And, uh, Steph would get, uh, would get drenched if she tried to drive home in it. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I don't know if I'll stay very long at all or not here. I know it's probably, there's a lot of background noise because there's traffic nearby and the roads are all wet and it just echoes in here. I don't have to start uh -huh. muted if I'm not talking, but I figured I'd just at least stop by and say hi to everyone. And sorry that um, I'm missing out on the show today. It was not my intention, not my plan. Um, I really thought I was going to be home much sooner than any thunderstorms would start today. And then I had some unforeseen um work stuff come up that kept me at the office about two hours later than I planned to be there. And by the time I went to leave, I looked outside and saw all these big, dark gray clouds and checked the radar and went, oh, actually, I did leave. I tried to leave and try and um, skirt around the storms to the east and to the south. And I made it about four blocks before I kind of ran into a wall of water. I could see it in front of me. I went, nope. <laughs> I turned around and nope. came back. <laughs> so I've just, I mean, since for about two and a half hours now, I've just been sitting here kind of waiting for it to, to pass and die down. And uh, it's uh, it's getting there slowly but surely. It's still sprinkling. And I think there's still just a little bit more to go. Probably another 45 minutes or so of rain. I just thought of a good uh, show title. Stranded. Stranded. <laughs> Stranded <laughs> at my own work. <laughs> Stranded in the parking garage. The Jeep yeah. is topless. Yeah. We, That's another yeah. one. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, if people are watching the video. Yeah. If you're, if you happen to be seeing the, uh, the video, 
you can see the uh, uh, the perspective of the uh, the, the jeep uh, and the parking garage um, ceiling outside. Oh, oh, okay, yeah, lots of rain. Lots of rain. So. Yeah, you don't want to be driving around in no, this like a monsoon out there. I've already been caught out in the rain once in my jeep without the tap on in the past week, and I'm sure everyone's thinking that I'm. This is all of my own making, which it completely is, but. I took the hard top off because I installed a uh, a lift for the hard top in my garage. And I thought on the day that I was going to like use that for the first time that I'd have plenty of time to go ahead and also install the soft top back on my Jeep, which because I haven't used the soft top on this particular car, it's an aftermarket one. There's like a two hour installation process for it. And I ended up getting tied up that day and I just have not had the chance to come back and do it. And so you have a topless problem. I have a topless problem, basically. <laughs> or actually a first world problem because you have this beautiful Jeep with all these different tops you can put on it. Sounds yeah, like a Ken and Barbie deal. It's a first world problem for sure. But Well, you know, Dana could have um, driven over there and, and put the top on for you because he's not doing anything. That's true. That's true. Dana, yep. you need to hop in like a GA aircraft and just... Uh, Come on up here. No, just drive, I'll just drive my Jeep up there. My, 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 my Jeep. Did I say Jeep? I was thinking about your Jeep. Yes. Uh, yeah. My Durango, which is actually a relative of the Jeep. And uh, I'll come up there while I'm there putting your top on. You can pull my shirt up and stick something in my back because it's killing me. Oh, yeah. We could, we could do a, you know, an exchange there. <laughs> Certainly. <laughs> Payment for, for barter. We can barter for services. Barter. barter. Yeah, that's barter for people. Yeah, I'm all of a sudden starting to get like a bunch of clicking noises, almost like you're clicking against your mic. So that might be where I say, I don't know, the audio on this is not the greatest setup, but I did want to stop in and say hi and just let everyone know I've been here, I've been listening and watching, and that I can't do this for real with you guys today. Yeah, we're bummed that you couldn't join us as well. It sounds like the sounds of The Predator, the movie The Predator. Yeah, a little bit. It sounds like oh, those watch types out. of sounds being made right now. So I'd be very careful over there, Dr. Steph. <laughs> now we're, we're yeah. good. I, I keep seeing the um, there's security that patrols the parking garage. They haven't kicked me out yet, but we're safe. So. Are you sure it's security or could it but, be the predator? It, it, yeah, good point. No. Oh, <laughs> really bad dreadlocks. home fairly soon. So. With that, okay. Well, we're. What you guys? Are we're sorry we missed you today. Yeah, um have less than an hour to go uh so oh well right. uh we'll we'll see you next time though sounds good Th- this week is there's a particularly particularly hard for us to schedule things so um yes. yeah all right well anyway see you the next time bye. see you staff great to see you Dr. Steph. have a great night drive safe thanks. all right thanks Dana. good to see you bye. bye so uh it was good seeing Steph. Glad that she could uh, pop in for a moment uh, while she's stranded in the parking garage. And uh, hopefully the weather will clear up for her soon and she'll be on her way home. And uh, we definitely missed 50% of our crew today, you know, both Steph and Nick. But hopefully next time we do this, both will be back with us. I arguably the best two thirds of the crew. Well, I'm not going to, we're not going to make value judgments here. I'm only kidding. I'm really only kidding. Okay. 
let's see. Where were we when we, uh, we kind of got out of the order? Nine. Um, nine? Nine. 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 Go to Tom. <laughs> yeah, Tom. Sufferer. Okay. Let's see. Looks like he sent some audio feedback, but we're going to start from the top of his note here. Dear Jeff and the rest of the crew, I'm a new listener and stumbled across the APG podcast recently, which is now the basis for my weekly aviation fix. Please find attached my audio feedback and a question for the crew, which you're welcome to use in in an upcoming episode. I would be truly grateful if you did. Well, that's what we're going to do, Tom. Thanks for the show. It's really appreciated. Like many, I'm passionate about the industry and would love to fly someday, but don't currently have the means. The podcasts really help keep the flame burning. All the best, Tom Harris. And let's listen to Tom's audio feedback. Dear APG crew, this is Tom Harris uh, from the UK. Um, Reporting firstly, just to say that um, there is a new strain of the APG syndrome uh, which I am uh, currently suffering with. It's uh, fairly new but a very uh, aggressive form of the syndrome. Um, I started listening uh, to your podcast a little over six weeks ago um, on a long drive. Um, always been fascinated by aviation. I was on a long drive, had nothing else to do and uh, it suddenly occurred to me I wonder if there's anything that will uh, take my interest in uh, podcasts and stumbled across the uh, APG podcast which I have uh, since been hooked to and been listening to uh, every week and really look forward to uh, catching up with um, the APG crew and uh, listening to what you bring uh, it's fantastic um, I was uh, my first or, or my my uh, question or a question I have I'm always I've always been very curious individual um, some might say I'm nosy uh, but that's what's less led to my uh, interest in all things aviation. Anyway, I was having lunch uh, at work, quite a late lunch in Italy, on uh, Monday the 18th, that was this week. Um, it was around about 3pm uh, uh, local time, or uh, 1400 Zulu. And uh, I happened to notice a, uh, a virgin... Um, a330 flying over my location in Essex, which kind of struck me as unusual. We're on the general flight path for um, Heathrow inbound via the uh, Lambourne uh, standard arrival route. Uh, but most of the time, you don't really notice the aircraft. They're generally around flight level 140, the, uh, where they pass um, my location um, in the middle of Essex. Um, but this particular aircraft was quite low, noticeable, you can see the details on it quite clearly. Um, so I pulled up my Flight Radar uh, 24 app and uh, verified this aircraft was indeed headed into London Heathrow. Uh, but it was at flight level 70, um, so a lot lower than they would normally be um, at that point. And uh, I think if I recall correctly, it was... Um, it was doing around 310 knots, something like that. So again, faster than it would be um, below uh, flight level 100. Um, and at that point in the arrival procedure. Anyway, this, uh, as I said before, this aircraft was uh, a Virgin aircraft. It was, uh, I think, Virgin 401 uh, from Dubai to 
uh, Heathrow. And uh, yeah, I just, I just wondered, I, I'd heard um, on previous episodes of APG that uh, Captain Nick, I think, has a, uh, a contact at London Heathrow, uh, the control uh, centre there. Uh, and so I just wondered if uh, if he may be able to answer the, ask the question um, and uh, quench my curiosity on, on that one. Um, I assume it's probably some sort of onboard uh, emergency perhaps that gave him priority um, or uh, a fuel issue or something like that. Um, or perhaps I, I guess part of me was wondering whether um, all Virgin crews um, have a tendency to think that they can uh, just push in and uh, and skip the queue. Um, yeah, I, I should mention that this uh, aircraft proceeded to Lambourne but bypassed the uh, hold, um, overtaking several other aircraft uh, as I tracked it towards Heathrow. Um, other than that, uh, yeah, thank you very much for the show. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Um, uh, keep up the good work. Uh, congratulations, obviously, to uh, Captain Dana now. Um, as I say, I haven't been following the show for very long, but uh, obviously a lot of hard work has gone into uh, uh, to getting that title. Um, so that's fantastic. But uh, other than that, clear skies and tailwinds to all. Um, cheers, Tom. All right. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate that acknowledgement on uh, my upgrade. It's uh, truly a great feeling, and uh, certainly, um, really do appreciate your your uh, compliment. And Tom, welcome to the APG community. We are sorry about the APG syndrome, especially this new strain. This a uh, very aggressive strain. And we do apologize for that. And uh, unfortunately, we're still working on a cure. Have not uh, nailed down uh, anything yet. But uh, if we find out what uh, will help with that, uh, we'll certainly let everybody know. Um, and as you suspect, Tom, those Virgin Atlantic guys are, they just feel like the rules don't apply to them, obviously. They do that all the time. Routinely skip the hold. Routinely fly faster than 250 knots below 10,000 feet. That's, you know, those rules are for everybody else. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, what you're probably, your suspicion about what may have occurred here as far as skipping holds and, and maybe flying faster than the uh, regulated uh, limit uh, may have something to do with some type of an emergency that required urgent um, handling, uh, which in, in this case, I think you may be right. It may have been a medical emergency that, uh, required the, um, uh, maneuvering. Um, and, uh, we will make sure Liz, our producer in the background has sent us the message that, uh, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, that we're going to, uh, present this to captain Nick and, uh, we'll, we'll probably play it again, or if not, he'll listen to it. He probably already has listened to it and maybe he can put in his two cents worth or his two pence worth, um, and, uh, let us know what he thinks may have been happening in this case. And, uh, unfortunately he's not here today because, uh, you know, he's, uh, on holiday, but, uh, again, I'm sure that he'll want to say something about this and welcome you as well, Tom, to the community. And, you know, Jeff, I, I would venture to guess, I don't know if you agree with me or not, but more times than not, most emergencies that we encounter are the medical type. 
So, yeah. I mean, that's very common for uh, a medical emergency return and or, uh, you know, ve- you know, expedited vectoring to get us on the ground quickly because we have such an event going on. So it's not uncommon for that to happen. Yeah. Well, thanks, Tom. And uh, keep listening. And hopefully you won't get burnt out from listening to all the old shows. And we look forward to hearing from you again on a future show. Now, number 10, Rob. Now, this is an interesting one. This doesn't happen very often at the APG. Uh, Let me read uh, Rob Warren's uh, feedback to us. Hi, Captain Jeff. I'm one of your executive producers on the Coffee Fund. Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much for that, Rob. And I love the show, and I hope the little I give helps in some way. Oh, absolutely it does. Uh, Whether you give a dollar a show or, or whatever, $20 a show, it definitely helps uh, offset the cost of doing the uh, the podcast and helps with meetups and all the other activities that go on uh, behind the scenes at the APG. Really um, do appreciate that. Anyway, he continues, I really do appreciate the uh, all the effort the APG crew puts into making the show. Uh, I've attached two drawings I'd like you guys to have and use as you please. I'd totally forgotten that I had drawn them and found them on my iPad the other day. I'd sketched them while on a flight from Australia to the UK, and it helped me kill some time. He was on a Emirates A380. This is a regular flight for me, as I like to visit my friends and family as often as possible. I'm currently living in Adelaide, which I've done for the last eight years. I'm originally from southeast London. Looking forward to the next show. And then he had some links. He he included the uh, uh, JPEGs of the uh, sketches that... uh, he did. And let me see, I'm going to be able to share them if you're watching the video. And we'll have these uh, sketches in the show notes as well. And I'm going to show everyone who happens to be watching now. This is the first um, (laughs) image that he, uh, the drawing that he did. And let's see, how do I describe this? Um, You know what, it kind of reminds me of um, like the Monty Python show um what was it called um monty python's flying circus or whatever where they have the the drawings and and or this is not moving like they do in the uh, monty python um whatever the show was called um and uh, but it has that kind of feel to it to me which is which is a compliment uh, i really love it it's very how would you describe this dana absolutely perfect <laughs> it's so, <laughs> so it is so Uh, it's so perfect in every (laughs) way. (laughs) So we'll try to use some words to describe it. Uh, There's uh, the Acme logo, sort of, (laughs) uh, with droopy wings um, in the the upper left-hand corner. There's some clouds, and there's a uh, what appears to be uh, a ver- uh, an, uh, what we call it, Acme Red aircraft with uh, Captain Nick uh, popping out of the top there, uh, piloting that thing by himself, of course. And then uh, there's a uh, a mad dog, um, interesting looking version of the mad dog with the 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 top cut out, kind of like the uh, uh, what was the uh, Hawaiian, Hawaiian Airlines uh, <laughs> lost the top, but uh, of course it's a, a very large um, caricature of both Dana and I, and I and we're both wearing Dana's um, uh, what do you call that hair? The, that, the, uh, crazy. the, the blonde spike hair. Which is blonde they're, they're spike hair in bandana form, bandana, and, and of course those crazy glasses you know, with the weird eyeballs. <laughs> both wearing that, 
And uh, of course, uh, I'm there with my white mustache and and holding up my hand to my chin like I'm pondering what in the world I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so it has the airline pilot guy logo on the uh, on the jet. And then last but certainly not least, right in front of the mad dog or to the side. So we don't hit this young lady who is skydiving. And of course, is Dr. Steph um, doing a free fall skydive. Um, and it's just perfect. So that uh, it really describes, I think, our, our personalities and our, our profession uh, in, in one very cool drawing. And I, w- I told uh, Rob that uh, it would be really cool if we could uh, make some T-shirts or, or, uh, or maybe postcards or something uh, out of this. And so people uh, listening to the show could, uh, could order them and, and wear them with pride if they'd like. Um, so that, that's the first one. And let me show you the next one or the second <laughs> one that he drew. And uh, <laughs> this one is just the airline pilot guy, Captain Jeff, um, which uh, looks very disturbing, my face. Uh, but uh, wearing my glasses and uh, I'm basically the, the head of an airplane. My head is the front part of an airplane and uh, it is the, uh, the APG jet. And uh, my tongue is extended forward and downward, uh, uh, heading toward uh, a beautiful looking pint of destination IPA. So that's the fuel, obviously, that that uh, fuels this uh, APG airplane, uh, which is a very ugly uh, my head (laughs) at the head of the airplane. So very cool. I love it. Love these things. Yeah. Thank you so much. Rob. (laughs) Absolutely. Amazingly awesome. I just, it just, it, you, you can't do it any better. We have uh, some creative folks that uh, watch and listen to the show for sure. And, and I too want this t-shirt. This is fantastic. Okay. We'll definitely, we'll get on that. Try to figure out a way to offer that as a, t- both of these as t-shirts. All right. Um, continuing on. Okay. This is sort of a correction for us. Uh, the This is uh, Tyler again, Ty. Uh, A couple of corrections regarding incentives in the U.S. Air Force to retain pilots. Pilot training takes one year if you do your part. And when you receive your wings, the clock starts on your 10-year active duty service commitment, your ADSC. At the time when I went through, by the way, this is a side note, Jeff here, um, the active duty service commitment after wings was six years. So uh, they increased it to 10 to try to keep the uh, military aviators into the service longer and hopefully get them over the hump so that they're more than halfway through their 20 year uh, term uh, for getting uh, retirement and such in the, in the military. Uh, Anyway, so going back to uh, Ty's feedback uh, at the conclusion of your 10 year commitment, you are then eligible for aviation continuation pay or the bonus. Currently, the bonus is fairly fluid, much like a sports-free agent. The amount and term is changing. Some critically short manned fields offer up to $35,000 per year and can take people out to 20-plus years of service. Also to note, the traditional 20-year retirement, which is 50% of your pay and medical care for the rest of your life, has changed to a quote, blended retirement system, which is best thought of as a hybrid of the old with a semi 401k you can take with you if you don't choose to serve 20 years. As the U.S. Air Force pilot shortage continues, all of the above can change. 
If someone is considering the U.S. Air Force as a way to become an airline pilot, please explore the options with knowledgeable people before committing to anything. <laughs> That's great advice. Cheers, Ty. Yes, a great idea to make sure that if you're talking with a recruiter or whoever you're talking with and you're considering uh, a significant decision when it comes to uh, your career in the military, please make sure that uh, you know all the facts before you sign or commit to anything because you'll be sorry if you don't. All right. Uh, thank you, Ty, for that. Uh, let's see. Moving on. Sean. So I saw this story about an AirAsia flight, which was delayed due, due to a tech issue. One passenger complained that they were on board without food and water for one and a half hours. The horror! They then complained that the pilots tried to force them out by misting up the interior. And of course, the media eats it right up. When the flight resumed, the airline provided sandwiches and drinks. I hate to say it, but I hope they never fly U.S. domestic flights. Far worse things have happened here. Uh, DL, Delta Airlines, does a good job with providing snacks and refreshments in irregular operations, but they're generally the exception. You're certainly not going to get a full sandwich flying a domestic Y seat during a delay with Delta. If the pilots really wanted people to leave the plane, they probably would have shut off the, uh, the air conditioning packs, not turn them on. Shutting off the air conditioning was one of the ways we used to try to end parties in college, and it worked. Yeah, very good point. Uh, he, he includes a link to the story uh, from NDTV.com uh, from India uh, about uh, Air Asia passengers stranded after a delay. But uh, yeah, the, turning off the air conditioning would be the way to get the people off the airplane, not turning it on. And the, the mist that uh, they're talking about in this news story, obviously it was because it's a, a very humid place and a very cool air coming into the cabin. And that was for passenger comfort, not to try to scare people and get them out of the airplane. So, yeah, yeah I completely misrepresented. I don't know. I missed it on the overhead when I went through training on the overhead panel. The switch, it says misting up the cabin. I, I, well, it's on the left-hand side, right above your head, kind of. It might be hard for you to see. You'll have to take a look next time you're in the cockpit, like in the next six months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe well that will be on the airbus which might be the next cockpit i'm in uh, but oh you know what i just remembered um it's it's uh right next to the chemtrails uh, switch yeah, exactly right next to it yep turn that on yep um <laughs> yeah I, I agree with you on that one uh, jeff i think it's probably condensation in the air conditioning system and in being it's in asia well, I, you know what? I'm. I was gonna say something, but I'm just gonna plead the fifth. I'm gonna, yeah, let's not. I'm not. I'm not gonna <laughs> say anything. I'm gonna be a gentleman. Okay. For change. Very good. So. Yeah. No, you're always a gentleman. Well, most of the not time. Not really. Well, some of the time. Occasionally. It's a very rare thing. No, I'm just. Gonna, <laughs> Pick up your uh, mind already, will you, sir? When am I gonna? I just need to. Somebody tell me to stop. Uh, or well, as, Steph's uh, not here, so I'm gonna tell you stop. Shut up, Jeff. Oh, there you go. Okay, thank you. <laughs> okay, uh, moving on, Steve. This is Steve Hurst, longtime follower of the APG crew and Coffee uh, Cadre member. Yay, thank, thank you, Steve. you, Steve. I read with interest the final report on the BA, uh, British Airways 777 Las Vegas engine fire uncontained engine failure. See the 
Aviation Herald link below. There are two main themes in the report I would like to mention and hear the view of the APG crew. As you will see in the report, there is some level of criticism leveled at the captain for failing to follow standard operating procedures in dealing with the situation. The QRH, the Quick Reference Handbook, was not used effectively, if at all. The procedures were not followed in the right order. For example, the evacuation was called step number three in the checklist before steps one and two in the checklist, including shutting down the engines and so on. Everyone got out safe and alive, so all in all, a job well done. However, it does lead me to question why this lapse in procedures happened. This was a highly experienced experienced captain on his final flight before retirement, and BA is an airline that has a strong reputation for pilot training and flight safety. This kind of scenario is thrown at pilots all the time in the simulator, yet when the real thing happens, the SOPs are not followed. Things slip and the situation does not play out as well as it should. Maybe I'm wrong, but I keep thinking that perhaps the startle slash panic factor comes into play. When pilots go for sim sessions, they know that things will be thrown at them, such as engine fires, V1 cuts, and the like, and I'm sure they go into the box fully alert and having mentally rehearsed the potential drills they will have to follow and how they will react. But in the end, it is an artificial situation and the sim cannot kill anyone. Then, on a routine flight home from Las Vegas, the unexpected happens, and things don't go as well as they probably would have in the sim. So my question is, do you think the startle panic factor came into play here and contributed to the lapses in adherence to the procedures, or perhaps fatigue, or maybe a combination of both? And with that in mind, what can we learn from this, and what could be done to modify training strategies to try to address risk factors? Yet again, during this incident, passengers flouted the rules and carried their carry-on baggage during the evacuation, putting the safety of themselves and the other passengers and crew at risk. This is not surprising. We've seen this before, and I'm sure we will see it again. Passengers don't pay attention to the safety announcements, and even when they do, some probably think selfishly and prefer to flout the rules and grab their carry-on so as to avoid the inconvenience of having their possessions stuck on the aircraft or, at the worst, their passport and other valuables burning with the aircraft. So what to do to solve the problem? Accept it happens and continue to try and educate passengers? Add a locking system to the overhead bins that the pilots operate before takeoff and landing? Ban carry-on luggage? Thanks in advance for the words of wisdom. Keep up the good work. And again, that's Steve Hurst. Thank you again for being a Coffee Fund Cadre member, Steve. And uh, you make you uh, pose some interesting and uh, very good questions for us. Uh, first of all, we'll, we'll uh, address the first aspect uh, in the report, talking about the fact that the crew didn't follow the, uh, the QRH checklist procedures properly, did them out of order, and uh, your uh, suspicion that uh, the startle panic factor came into play, I believe, is a big part of it. Um, you know, we, as you mentioned, when we go into the box, the simulator, we know something is going to go wrong. And so we've really prepared a lot before we've gone into the simulator and gone over those quick response, uh, handbook, uh, checklists and, uh, the bold, uh, bold face, we call it, uh, the, uh, the items that we have to know by heart. And, uh, we're just like spring loaded, ready to go, uh, when something happens like that in the simulator where, when you're in the real world, that never happens. You never lose an engine. The never uh, an engine never explodes on takeoff. You're never going to have to 
do an abort and do an emergency evacuation and, and uh, until you do, until it really happens. And uh, I think uh, you're on to something there about the, uh, the startle factor and uh, the fact that, uh, you know, you just, you're just not ready for something like this to present itself. You're probably in a state of uh, denial, like, well, this, this can't be happening. Uh, but uh, as Dana will probably back me up, the most important thing to have uh, for us to do in this kind of a situation, especially when something unexpected happens like this, is to try to slow everything down and be very uh, deliberate with every action that you make. Uh, although you'll probably feel like you need to rush because it's a situation where people could get hurt or killed if they don't do something very quickly. But it's very important that you do the right thing and maybe take a little extra time, a few extra seconds to make sure you're doing everything as you're supposed to. What do you think, Dave? Oh, <clears throat> to be honest with you, uh, I couldn't agree with you more. And and certainly with the the feedback on and the questioning is, is absolutely fantastic, um, Steve. You know, I... I I think the the big thing, and being that I just came out of training and uh, knowing kind of what I was going to be handed in the simulator, I couldn't agree more with with the statements that we go in preloaded. But there's something very important I took out of training, and 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 that is, um, you know, we're all different, so we all handle situations differently. And take take a second and stop. Look at your watch. Wind you, wind your watch. Nothing is so dire and immediate that you have to do something an instantaneous decision-making process. You always have, even when you're going down the runway just prior to V1, you always have some type of uh, plan and also uh, some some momentary ability to make a decision. And so I think in this case, uh, uh a lot of things came into, in, into play, Steve, and I think you hit them all in the head. Uh, fatigue, uh, different time zones. Uh, the guy is on his last flight, so he's probably not uh, really thinking anything about any type of abnormal situation because, quite honestly, he could have gone all of his career or most of his career without any type of incident. So, um, you know, his age may have been a little bit of a factor because now, you know, we're we're – we're now thinking retirement, and all of a sudden, I'm faced with a true emergency, and I haven't thought about an emergency because I haven't been going to the simulator. And my last sim, once I, once I went through that simulator, I just kind of dumped it all out. And I'm not discrediting this captain at all. He probably had an illustrious career. I'm just speaking to the fact that this is what it is. Um, a lot of guys, uh, I, I flew with the... My last uh, go around with a captain that had two um, sim training, uh, uh, um, uh, recurrent training cycles left. And I went uh, through the training cycle and had absolutely no issue. He was held back by the instructor to be given a thorough talking to because even he told me uh, he had a lot of le a level of apathy because he's just getting towards the end of his career and he's been doing it for so long. So, yeah, there's a lot to be said for the level of experience uh, for somebody that's been around that long. And sometimes there's, there's got to still be that level of professionalism that you need to have to be able to operate all the way up until you set the parking brake on your final flight and, uh, and be professional. So, um, 
you know, again, I, I can't second second guess this guy Monday morning quarterback him um, because I've been in the same scenario, rushing through checklist, and guess what? I've skipped a couple of lines reading too fast, and that is the learning experience of the simulator. And I don't think you can do a whole lot more to really prepare anybody for coming out to fly the line and uh, be able to react by by uh, um, by you know in the training is just to react and take your time and think about what you're doing, and that's the best training and the best lesson I've ever been given in the simulator. And hopefully, when when push comes to shove with 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 any situation I'm faced with, whether it be when I go to work tomorrow night, hopefully, or next week, next month, next year. Uh, I sit back and I say, okay, let me think about this for a second. I don't need to rush through this and just be calm, cool, collective. So, uh, you know, individuals on an individual basis, uh, you know, react, react differently. And maybe when his button was pushed, he reacted a little bit, a little bit too fast. So, um, but you know, everybody got out alive and, uh, in the end game, you know, we're human beings and we're not all perfect. That is so true. And, um, yeah, you make some good points, added some added factors, um, maybe a little bit, bit of complacency for goodness sake, this is your last flight, your retirement flight. I mean, what could, nothing could go wrong. Right. You know, and, uh, and also the good, the point well-made regarding, you know, in the simulator, we don't want to screw things up. We don't want to mess things up, but sometimes making mistakes in the simulator, although embarrassing and whatever, uh, can be the best education that you can have. I mean, it really, it really, uh, you remember that if you've messed something up in the simulator, uh, even if it's a serious thing, uh, you, you, you'll know that you'll never, or you'll try not to do that again yeah. in the future. That's a good lesson to exactly. learn. Exactly. And, and, and Jeff, the most important thing is, is just like we were talking not too long ago with program and computer, we can't program a human being for every, or train for every single circumstance that could ever be faced by a human being. So, you know, as, yep. as I said, there's human error in there. Um, you hope that we don't make that error and it's not a critical error in this case, it wasn't. Um, but still there was a human error in there despite, yep. despite all the level of training. And as regards the second part of his question, Dana, regarding the, uh, the uh, carry on luggage. Yeah, you're right. It's going to happen again. And, um, what to do about it. Uh, I don't think locking the overhead bins is a solution because there are some, uh, bad side effects of, of doing that. That might actually be worse than people carrying their carry ons off the airplane during an evacuation. Um, you know, educating the passengers. I mean, I don't know what else to do regarding that. Um, ban carry on luggage. Well, that would certainly be a way to do it. Um, but I can't see that happening either. Um, I don't know. It's a that's a good question. I don't know if anybody really has the the answer for that. No, I don't have an answer as well. The uh, the the big thing is is that we are in a society nowadays. You know, soon after September 11th, and you can probably attest to this. Um, people are very on, on airplanes, very attuned to taking care of each other, watching off each other, asking how you're doing, being very attentive to each other's needs. Uh, now we're back to the me society in a lot of respects and you know a, a businessman on board the airplane with a briefcase full of important legal papers the only thing he's thinking about is you know what i need to do with that that so you know you, you got to put the the human factor into that as well uh it's you know 
there is nothing we can do in total control of, uh, of, of you know, briefing the passengers as the flight attendants do over and over until they're blue in the face. And then we have a perfect example of the rapid depressurization on Southwest Airlines where people can't even put the mask over their nose, uh, put it in the right position on their face. So, and that's in the briefing card. Ian is briefed by the flight attendant on how to do that. They yet still don't listen. So um, I think we have a, a very high level of apathy and a, and a very high level of, of meism in society today, unfortunately. However, um, I, I don't see that there's an easy solution to it. Uh, you know, yeah. I really, really don't. I don't either. Anyway, great questions, uh, Steve. Thanks for posing them. I'd be like, I'd like to hear what Nick had to say, would have to say on that one too. Yeah. Well, maybe he'll think to say something about that on the next show. Um, number 14, Robert, uh, our Ferry flights like the one on Endeavor below. He, he included a screenshot of his phone, I think. Uh, are ferry flights like the one on Endeavor Airlines below protected in most pilot contracts that they must be flown by a union crew? And I think the answer to this one, uh, Robert, is that it depends on the contract, I would imagine. If it's a union represented uh, an airline with uh, pilots that are represented by a union, it, it would depend, I think, on the contract. Uh, that is uh, agreed to between the pilots and the management. And I suppose it's possible that there could be a provision that says, hey, if you need to ferry an airplane from this point to another point, in this case, Raleigh-Durham to Atlanta, uh, you can you can use your own pilots that aren't part of our pilot group and you know non-union. I, I don't think there is any contract out there like that. That uh, at least that I'm aware of, I know that at our company, Dana and my air, airline, uh, if a if an airline if uh, an airplane needs to be ferried out to the desert or the boneyard or a maintenance ferry or whatever it is, it's going to be flown by a seniority list um, pilot, a union pilot. Yeah, I agree with you, Jeff, hundred uh, percent. That uh, if it's uh a representative company of, of by a union that it's going to be a union shop and that's going to be who's going to be flying the airplane. So not to say that other, and that's going to be primarily in the, uh, the United States, Canada or any, any Alpa, probably Alpa representative carrier more than likely, but you get some of those uh, other carriers and, and more of the second uh, world countries and third world countries than, I would I would venture to guess that all bets are off on who can fly the airplane on ferry flights, but domestically it would probably be I would venture to guess almost every or every airline would probably have some type of protections, some type of protections. Yep. All right, quickly uh, number fifteen, dispatcher Jared. Hello, APG crew. I'm a dispatcher at Acme. Oh, right, another uh, dispatcher. I know now three. Jared, welcome. Um, listening to episode 325, I couldn't help but notice the discussion around payload optimization. Captain Dana, congrats on the upgrade, mentioned how payload optimize means no non-rev passengers will be boarded. That's not necessarily true. From the dispatcher chair, we do everything we can to plan to take all passengers, including non-revs, and more times than not, we do. However, it's a training issue for our stations because the station agents see payload optimized on their paperwork and make the same assumption that no non-revs should be boarded. 
On our flight releases, the captains can see how many passengers the, dis the dispatcher planned for their flight. If any of our crew members hear that no non-revs are going to be boarded, always feel free to reach out to the dispatcher to get an explanation. Appreciate all you guys do. Keep up the great work. Blue skies and tailwinds, dispatcher Jared. Well, that's good information to know, Jared. So next time when Dana and I see the, pa the payload optim optimization note on our flight plan and uh, other paperwork, I think I'm going to take his advice and call my dispatcher and say, okay, what does this mean? Does this mean that we can't take any non-revs? And if he says, oh, no, that does not mean that, then perhaps uh, a quick discussion. I'm not sure how... <laughs> how um, how that's going to work with a gate agent that is, uh, uh, you know, kind of set in their ways and uh, doesn't want to change their mind about it. But um, perhaps there's a possibility that we can convince them after having talked to our dispatcher that it is okay to, not, you know, board non-revenue passengers. Well, you know, and Jared, amazingly enough, uh, and I truly uh, appreciate your writing in on this, Um and and clearing the air on it uh, believe it or not when when you brought all this i uh, i'm very well aware of 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 those issues and uh, what i was really frustrated with was exactly what you're talking about was the level well wasn't the level of uh, it's probably a bad, bad way to say it but there was a certain apathy in the uh, flight deck in regards to the fact that it was payload optimized there's no effort on the part of the the crew to try to um, talk to dispatch and see if there's any way it can get anybody else on the airplane because we left with numerous empty seats. So I get it. Um, and I would, yes, you're absolutely right. I would contact my dispatcher. And, and uh, one of the things I will ask uh, if I have empty seats on the airplane, if we're not payload optimized and or payload optimized, I'll try to be proactive on that is always try to get all the non-revs that I can get on the aircraft because there's no sense in leaving people behind that uh, shouldn't be left. So that will always be one of my questions to the gate agents. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of situations that they're under such tremendous stress and pressure from the uh, management and, and above, the supervisors and above to go ahead and, and dispatch these aircraft on time that they're not going to make the extra effort and or time until the captain says, and I did this on my OE, as a matter of fact, and say, listen, I am not going to go anywhere until this is resolved, period. Put it on me. That's fine. You know, that's what they want to hear because they want to make sure the delay is not on them, the gate agent. Um, and, you know, I, I went into it in, in a past episode about the lady that left her pocketbook. You know what? We're in a customer service business, and let's provide the customer service with its internal, external customers. And that's the way I view our operation and in the way that I view people. Um, and it's a way good, I think, a really good way to view uh, things because, um, you know, we, we all work together for the same common goal. So. Uh, yeah, it, payload optimization. I understand where the company is coming from, and uh, and I understand where the disconnect with the front line is. People see that, and the first thing they see is, oh, we can't put anything else on the airplane other than paying passengers fuel and bags. So, yeah, very good, very good. All right, um, thank you, Dispatcher Jared, for participating in our show because you know really uh, it's it's you you know well the co-hosts here we all work hard to uh provide an entertaining of course but uh informative informant, feedback informative yeah. yeah a show and uh we we couldn't do it without 
all of you participating and helping us do that. Uh, not only asking the questions, but also a lot of the times helping us to answer the questions. And so we uh, we all learn something together. Absolutely. And, and, and Jared, it certainly don't take that in the wrong way. Um, I, uh, I think that everybody's, uh, everybody, anybody that writes in creates great conversation, um, amongst each other in, in the group here and without the, the feedback from, from everybody that listens to the show, we certainly would be a whole lot more boring and not as entertaining, I think. And, uh, I think, uh, we are, are, are far, far more interactive because of it and it brings a lot to this show. So please continue to send that in to us. All right. And finally, Brandon sent us some audio feedback. And so let's hear from Brandon Gonzalez, a new producer and also host of the Podcasting on a Plane podcast. Hey, APG community, Brandon here live from the tower. And I've got a few things to say about that question that's been circulating around for a while about the towers clearing aircraft to land with another one still on the runway. Well, fellow CFI John, here's your answer. His local tower mentioned the 3,000-foot rule between smaller craft. And yes, that's of course correct. But let me expand on it for a minute. 3,000 feet is what we use between small aircraft. And small in ATC language means single-engine airplanes like Skyhawks, Bonanzas, Cherokees, and even the small turboprops like Meridians, TBMs, and a, and a Pilatus too. We call these Cat 1 aircraft. All helicopters also fall into that category. There are two more categories, Category 2, which is light twins, and Category 3, which includes all jets, which obviously require a lot more spacing. 4,500 feet and 6,000 feet and airborne, respectively, for those two categories. Separately, if there's in-trail wake turbulence separation required, a controller would need to factor that in as well. But don't worry, I won't get into that this time. One of a tower's main objectives is to provide runway separation. Whether it's arrival-arrival, arrival-departure, or departure-departure, what matters most is what kind of aircraft is in the back. The successive one, so to speak. If a Cessna 172, for example, is the one in the back, 3,000 feet's enough. If the successive aircraft is a Category 2, something like, I don't know, a Seneca or an Aztec, 4,500 feet then would be required. And if either one's a Cat 3, front or back, then the front aircraft would need to be 6,000 feet down the runway and also airborne, or else the landing aircraft would need to be sent around. If the runway's less than 6,000 feet long, though, past the departure end is considered sufficient. So, that's that for distance. The point of the question I know was about whether or not you can clear an aircraft to land with one still on the runway. And the answer, of course, is yes. But what we call it is anticipated separation, which is just what it sounds like. Anticipated separation means that you can issue a clearance as long as the prescribed separation will exist when the arriving aircraft crosses the threshold. For example, if an aircraft checks in with me at the tower on, I don't know, a 10-mile final, let's say, if there's no reason to withhold the landing clearance, I'll clear them to land. If an aircraft will depart on that aircraft's landing runway after the landing clearance has been issued, but before the arriving aircraft lands, I have to inform them that traffic will depart prior to their arrival. If I decide to sequence another airplane in front of them, I don't also have to take away their landing clearance, I just have to inform them of their new sequence. Make sense? When things get complicated, though, sometimes is lineup and wait procedures. At large airports that have ground radar, which is called ASDX, you can clear an aircraft to land and then have another one lined up in position. At airports like mine, though, which do not have ASDX, you may line up an aircraft and wait with another one on final. However, you cannot issue the landing clearance to the landing aircraft until the one you put in position is not only cleared for takeoff, but also starts their takeoff roll. So putting it all into practice, then, 
When the traffic pattern gets really busy at my single runway airport, my job is to sequence arriving aircraft and, of course, leave enough space to depart aircraft in between arrivals if needed. The other day, I worked a really busy session where I was able to sequence and clear six aircraft to land in order, anticipating, of course, that at the time each one crossed the threshold, that the previous aircraft would either be far enough down the runway or clear of it entirely. And if that isn't the case, well, then I'd have to send the next arrival around. But no matter how you look at it, that's six arriving aircraft, each with their preceding aircraft to follow in sight, and each with landing clearances. And every single one of them is going to have somebody ahead of them on the runway at some point, right? There isn't really an upper limit to how many airplanes you can do that with either. Just the limitations of visual separation, and of course your own ability as a controller to keep it all straight. Anyway, I hope that answers your question. And to Captain Jeff, Dr. Steph, Captain Nick, and Captain Dana, thanks for having me on the show. Good day. All right, Brandon, very, very nice. And of course, he is, again, the host of the Podcasting on a Plane. That's podcastingonaplane.com. And he is an air traffic controller, and he knows stuff, lots of stuff. So thank you for helping to clarify that. I think, it, yeah, fantastic. Unbelievable. Uh, I can't even speak. You left me so speechless, Brandon. <laughs> oh, you need to send more feedback then, yes, Brandon. do that. To, to make speechless. sure that Dana's continuously speechless. <laughs> All right. Just I'm kidding. fired. <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. I'm just joking. I was just uh, having fun at your expense. Oh, I love that. Which is I what I enjoy doing. It has fun with oh, I should of course probably. I do. That's why I actually got off the lake today. Put it all to bed and came to, and made sure I was on the podcast today because I didn't want you. Yes, yeah, very dedicated. All by myself. Yeah, well, thank you, and it shows your dedication. Unlike some other co-hosts that uh, would rather be enjoying spending time with their wife on the coast of England or hanging out in a parking garage. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, we know where your priorities yeah, are. Steph. Definitely her priorities. So, uh, let's see, we're, uh, this is the end of the show. Thank you for bearing with the two of us, uh, today. And, uh, again, we do appreciate all your great feedback. And if you want to learn more about the show, head over to airlinepilotguy.com. You can send feedback there, or you can send feedback, feedback at airlinepilotguy.com, or you can download, uh, the iOS or Android apps and, uh, follow us that way and send us feedback that way as well. And uh, let's see, we're also on social media, and Captain Dana is going to tell us about that. Today, it's actually going to be me. I'm stepping in for the invulnerable Dr. Steph, and uh, I probably won't do it nearly as nicely as she does, but I'm going to make an effort. So on Twitter, you can find us at APG.crew, and uh, you can always reach us on Facebook at Airline Pilot Guy, and that's all one word on Facebook. Certainly look us up. Absolutely. And uh, let's see, we're also on Slack, and Hillel's here to tell us about that. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and Plain Tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at Slack at airlinepilotguy.com that's s-l-a-c-k sierra lima alpha charlie kilo at airlinepilotguy.com or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at hillel and i'll send you an invitation that's hillel spelled h-i-1-1-e-1 hotel india one one echo one and see you in slack 
Thank you, Hillel. And uh, until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Hasta la vista, baby. See everybody next time. Bye-bye. Good day.